0: Have you been here since you had a kid?
1: Yeah, I was yeah, here last, right. right, about four months after. I didn't sleep at all. It's amazing I, like, was able to talk for...
0: And now your kid is how old? 13 months. Wow. Wait till they start talking.
1: He Oh, he says, I mean, he's, he's now, like, his new thing is he says, all done. All done. So he'll say it, like, he'll say it before I change his diaper because he doesn't want me to go through that you know he's like all done all done <laughs> but he'll say it like Elaine crib and say it like when he's ready to get out you know a bed early in the morning and i'm like waiting i'm like maybe i'll come back to sleep
0: now b- being a scientist and having a child are you are you like cognizant of like every single factor that's taking place like nutrition all the input emotional input environment like must be Kind of mind-blowing. And ex- mind-exhausting,
1: too. Yeah. Yes, it is. I'll give you an example right now, like, because we're traveling. Right. And, um, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty – the BPA, so plastic bottles. You know, I'm having to give him water, and he's, like, obsessed for whatever reason. He's obsessed with drinking. I brought his, like, you know, nice cup, um, but he doesn't want to drink it out of his cup. He wants to drink it out of these plastic bottles. It's novel and it's right. like, crinkly sound. And anyways, you know, so I'm, like – All I can think about is the BPA and, you know, am am I, am I exposing him to too much and what's it doing? And
0: And is that BPA, is it leach only when it gets hot? Is that how it works? So,
1: and that's another thing I was thinking about in my hotel today because I was making a coffee with one of those, um, one of those paper cups that has the plastic lining. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know what's in the plastic lining, BPA or some of the BPA alternatives, which have also been shown. to. What does BPA stand for? Uh, bisphenol A. So, um... To answer your question, there's been experiments done that have shown heat. So boiling boiling water and putting it in plastic increases the BPA that leaches into the the solution, into the the water, by like 55-fold. So, yes, definitely heating it up is like way worse. And so one of the things I'm always now thinking about is, you know, going to Starbucks, whatever. The plastic lining they're putting in those cups when you get your hot tea or your hot coffee, um, I don't know if there's BPA, but... There's now studies that have come out, and these studies have been done in animals that show, like, BPS and some of the other um, BPA replacements also have negative consequences on the endocrine system, on reproduction. In some, in some cases, they're passed on to multiple generations. Now, how much of that is actually translates to humans? It's unknown. Um, but there have been studies, at least with BPA, that have shown that, you know, you give a person a, a single dose of BPA and it disrupts, like, their insulin sensitivity. Um, it also plays a role in, like, um, um, causing problems with in vitro fertilization. So it's, you know, disrupting hormones and things like that. So I was really cognizant about it during pregnancy because, you know, typically um, we do detoxify detoxify it uh, quite well. Uh, The half-life is, like, less than five hours, and we excrete it through urine. It also comes out through sweat, by the way, which is really good. Um, but preg- but you know, when you're pregnant, for whatever reason, the placenta, it, you know, you you're basically take the BPA, your body, it's in your body, and your your liver will, you know, inactivate it to this like more benign compound. But when it crosses over the placenta, it gets in, it gets activated again, and so it's like that's why the effects are much more uh, robust, always on like the developing fetus. And so I was really made sure I was like not drinking anything out of a plastic bottle or anything like that when I, while I was pregnant, just because... I mean, I don't know. <laughs> right. At the end of the day, there's there's a lot of studies that have been done in animals, and just how much of that, you know, translate, how significant is it? It's really hard to say. Um, but it's certainly a concern.
0: It's probably a compounding effect, right, with all the other environmental factors, pollution, particulates in the air, oh, yeah. chemicals, all the other jazz that we take into our body all the time.
1: Right. Yeah. And then the fact that actually aging bottles, like as you... For whatever reason, as a bottle sits, like if you keep using, for example, the study was done with baby bottles. If you keep using a baby bottle and putting liquid in, as the, the bottle aged, more BPA was leached out into the liquid. So for whatever re- I know, it's just – so it's another thing I'm thinking about with all, like, my son's stuff. It's like everything's plastic and he's chewing on it. It's like, you know, at some point you just can't, like <laughs> – there's you can't control everything, right? How many kids do you think you're going to have? Right now um one is it's it's I am so satisfied. I'm full of so much joy and it's a lot of work. Um and I you know, he's 13 months, so I've I've only had him a little bit over a year. So right now I'm I'm really happy with him being special. Um I I don't know. I think it's likely maybe one, but I'm not going to like, you know, say for sure. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and you know, it just Adding another, it's like, well, you you know, you're gonna. I've put a lot of energy and time, you know, spent a lot of time with him doing lots of things, and of course, all the nutrition
0: and all that. But um, it's how do you
1: do that with two? It's
0: it's very it's very satisfying though watching them play with their siblings. It's really interesting. Like my two youngest, my eight and my ten, like watching them play together. It's it's adorable watching them hold hands Uh and do stuff together. It's really fun. Like, and they develop a very unique bond. They fight all the time over nothing. Like, give me that. It's mine. It's mine. Like, and all of a sudden, like, whoa, 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 what happened? You know, like, there's always like some blow up Mm because they have zero control of their emotions. Anything that goes wrong, (laughs) (laughs) it's just a floodgate. It's either on or it's off. And but they're really good at apologizing too, which is really interesting. We've taught them how to do that. How to just say, look, everybody gets emotional. It's okay. Apologize and hug it out.
1: Yeah. I think it's also another thing that is really important is teaching your your children how to be happy. Like, Mm -hmm. you
0: know, because that's important. They see that, though. They'll see that in you. You know, they imitate their environment. They see, you know, that you know how to be happy and that you can turn things around and you know to uh, make light of situations and they'll they'll they take on these behavior patterns really that's one of the more fascinating things is watching kids go wow well, what are you gonna do you know like when you do what are you gonna do and then you see them going huh what are you gonna do and you're like wow watching an eight-year-old figure that out is kind of cool
1: yeah that's nice that's nice to know yeah it's like right now my son he's he's almost always just happy you know it's so and I'm thinking about like future I'm like oh he's gonna Girl problems and oh, girl problems, you know, or boy problems, just anything, you know. Where it's Have you just, ever thought, what if he's gay? Yeah, and that's where I'm like, you know, all the, the endocrine disruptors <laughs> and
0: everything. I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, the no. environment's turning my son gay. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Who knows what's happening? Yeah, I mean, and what's what's of major concern to me is living in uh, major metropolitan areas with the constant pollution. And uh, I was reading a study that was talking about. Living in any major metropolitan area like New York City can take many years off of your life. Just from living there, it will shorten your life.
1: Yeah, I've been reading multiple studies over the years about air pollution. And, you know, there's there's compounds in air pollution that are carcinogens like, you know, benzene. And there's also the particulate matter and how these, you know, how air pollution is um, increasing the risk for stroke, heart attack, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and this is, like, in dose-dependent manners, and, of course, there's all sorts of confounding factors, and you can never really show causality, although some animal studies have been showing causality. Um, it's, and, and some of these things are really bad in developing nations that don't have a lot of regulatory um, re- regulations on, um, for example, like, automobile exhaust. And so some, some developing countries have, like, children coming down with, like, strokes and stuff, like, early, like, young, hmm. teenage So, um, and it's been, this is of course, you know, been linked to air pollution. Uh, So it's, it's definitely a concern. And then there's all sorts of studies talking about, um, you know, of course, asthma, but, you know, happiness and, and, and brain function and all that, you know? So, and it's something like, I live off of a busy, a road, and then there's noise pollution, which is another, I mean, so I, it's like something that I've been like really, really aware of and trying to like move out away from uh, busy, trafficy areas, uh, particularly for my son, you know, because I'm just I'm very concerned about the
0: health risks. Yeah. I wonder also the in, the impact of just being in an urban environment and the fact that it's not really natural and that maybe a person who's an adult could enjoy living in Manhattan and decide that they get a thrill out of living in the city, but for a baby to grow up around all that concrete and glass and all these sharp, hard edges and right angles that it's maybe not conducive to healthy brain development or that's not, not like what your what your body or your brain is naturally craving.
1: Right. There's been studies looking at, for example, like people that exercise in a metropolitan area versus like out in like a park nature and that, you know... All sorts of measurements of you know, depressive symptoms are, are measured after, and the ones that measured or that did uh, nature run were far better um, at you know, basically feeling, feeling happier after, after the run than the people that did in the metropolitan city.
0: That makes sense, you know? I mean I think that's why people like Central Park in New York City. It just so an oasis. Yeah, you get something I mean it's really a great place. It's really quite big. One of the things about Central Park, when you're in it, you're like, wow, this is weird that this is in the middle of the city. But it's a brilliant move to have this one area. I mean, you think about how much that real estate would be worth. if They decided just to shove buildings in there. I mean, Manhattan is one of the most pricey real estate places on the planet Earth. And yet in the middle of it, they have this big, open, public park area that anyone could just wander around, sit by a tree. It's really a very, very smart move.
1: Yeah, it is It is
0: nice. L.A. should have something like that. Is the air
1: pollution, do you know if the
0: air pollution what's like in Manhattan? I mean, it's have pub, terrible. It's terrible in Manhattan, too, well, compared not, to L.A.? I think they're probably equally sucky. But the thing that is bothering me um, is not just the air pollution in terms of, like, the exhaust fumes and the the ex- exhaust, uh, the smells, but also the brake dust. You know, when I, I first started paying attention to brake dust— And um, I would always clean it off my wheels, but I would never think about it like, oh, there's dust that's on my wheels. I would think, oh, it's just dust on your wheels. Then someone was explaining to me, no, that's an environmental hazard that you're breathing in if you live in that environment. When you're around, you know, if you're on Broadway and cars are constantly hitting their brakes around you, there's a puff of that brake dust that's getting in the air with every pump of the brakes. Wow. And you're just taking that disgusting stuff into your lungs.
1: Yeah, the particulate matter, the yeah. stuff that's really uh, tiny and stuff. Yeah, I mean, because that's like mesothelioma, right? You're taking in the particulate matter from like asbestos. Mm-hmm. So in the same, you'd think there'd be similar mechanisms, maybe not going to lead to mesothelioma, but that there would be similar mechanisms at play that are like, you know, damaging organs.
0: Good to visit, not good to stay. <laughs> that's what I think. I mean, I of no desire. I don't even like living here. I think there's too many people.
1: Yeah, it's. I definitely don't like driving here. Like it's, uh, like it's it's really
0: bad. (laughs) How much is the difference between here and where in San Diego? San
1: Diego is definitely bad during, um, you know, typical times people are either going to work or coming coming home from work. Uh, But it's 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 nothing like LA. I mean, LA is orders of magnitude worse for sure.
0: If you're not doing clinical research you could do a lot of your stuff somewhere else. Have you thought about being somewhere else?
1: Um, so my family's in San Diego. And uh, it's really nice having my mom in particular because she helps out a lot with uh, my son so that I can uh, get some work done too, right. <laughs> which is important. And I really, d- we could live, you know, a little bit further out. I mean, there's there are places like that are still within like 40 minute drive mm-hmm. to like, you know, downtown San Diego, uh, beaches and stuff that are that are nice, and um, so that is something that we are considering. But Somewhere
0: just a little quieter.
1: Definitely quieter. No matter what, it's going to be you know because we live there's a just it's a busy road and there's fire sirens and you know my mm. my son likes the fire sirens but there are t- there have been times when there have been loud motorcycles and he is like concerned like you can see you look on it like it's you know so so it kind of worries me as well um, but. Definitely. It's 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 important to get away from that. It's like a goal for sure
0: now before the podcast started You were telling me that you wrote a 30 page paper on the carnivore diet
1: It's not a paper. Well, it's I definitely spent a lot of pages. I thought about it for a long time And yes, there's 30 pages of thoughts and
0: references. Were you (laughs) stunned that this became I mean, this is a very recent thing that people are just eating meat well, at, at first, um, when I was, when,
1: I think Dan told me about it, like, a couple years ago, even, like, and, and I thought, there's no way. I was like, I just ignored it. <laughs> I was like,
0: like crazy I don't
1: have time for that. Right. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I definitely um, dismissed it when I, when I first heard about it. But it's definitely been something that has, you know, gained a lot of traction.
0: Yeah, you know, Does it disturb you that it's gained traction?
1: Well, I definitely have concerns. Um, you know, I think that the the most important question really is what is attracting someone to try such a very restrictive diet, you know, that potentially could be dangerous without published evidence or any sort of long-term studies and things like that. So I think that the first question really is, well, why are people doing this? And so looking on the internet and try to like read about people's anecdotes. Um, It seems as though a lot of people are drawn to it because they have some sort of autoimmune problem. And uh, so they try this diet and it improves their autoimmune symptoms. And I see that seems to be a real common theme Mm -hmm. um, in at least if you, if you look in the blogospheres and stuff like that. Um, So that's, I think kind of a good place to start where it's like, well, you know, what are people doing this for? And then, uh, so that's, that's kind of an important question. And um, so, so further reading about this diet is sort of, sort of think about, well, okay, well, what's going on? It's really important when you have, like, something that leads to a, an effect to understand the mechanism because the mechanism is, you know, what's leading to, to this effect. And so if you can do something that's potentially not so dangerous – um, or risky, then understanding the mechanism will help you because then you can find other ways to do it, right? And so, um, if you look at, at uh, published studies on people that eat low carb, high protein diets, um, what's pretty common is that there, there's changes that happen in a variety of different endocrine factors, um, like you know, you're less insulin, that's changing your satiety and hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin, and people become more satiated and they actually eat less, and this has been shown. Um, in in multiple studies. So people actually eat less when they're having a higher protein diet, which makes sense too because protein is more satiating uh, as well. Um, And also, there's also been studies on what's called food habituation, uh, where basically, so habituation is when you're constantly exposed to the same stimulus, you sort of have a decreased response to that stimulus. Where there's been intervention trials where people are given the same food every single day, both non-obese and obese people, Versus people that are given the same food once a week, and the people that are given the same food every single day, they they start to eat less calories. So they start to eat less um, naturally, sort of to caloric restrict themselves. Um, So I mean, and that's it's kind of like a dietary monotony sort of thing. So I think there, and you know, if you read and the people out there on the blogs talking about this diet, they say like I'm eating less, I only eat twice a day, I'm fasting. You know, so that's. People are talking about that as well. Mm-hmm. So, I think there's published evidence to kind of explain that, and also there's, you know, people saying, yeah, I eat less. So, that's an important point um, because one thing that's really known to affect autoimmunity is caloric restriction and fasting. Like, it's probably one of the most well known um, technologies that you can intervene and have improvements in autoimmune disease. So, um, some of that has to do with the fact that you can sort of reset your immune system. There have been animal studies and human studies, a lot of this done by Dr. Walter Longo at USC. Uh, He's done some prolonged fasting um, in animals, and also there's been sort of like a fasting mimicking diet done in humans, which kind of a a very low-calorie diet that sort of is meant to mimic fast. Um, And those have shown that um, you basically kind of cross over, because fasting is a type of stress, you cross over into this, like, stronger stress response where – you're not only like cleaning away all the gunk in the sides of the cells. People talk about autophagy a lot when they're talking about fasting. You clean away things like damaged, you know, pieces of DNA, protein aggregates, things like that, um, mitochondria that are damaged get cleared out. But you also sort of start to clear away entire cells through a process called apoptosis. And in animal studies, what's been shown is that if you do, for example, a 72-hour fast, you can clear away about 30% of the immune system and, that, and, and, and re- replenish it with, like, brand-new healthy immune cells. And literally, like, organs shrink when, during the fasting, and then they, like, re-expand because you're activating stem cells, and you're, you're you know, basically replenishing all your damaged old cells with new ones. Uh, well, Volter has shown in, in these animal studies also autoimmune um, uh, cells tend to be selectively killed off and replaced with non-autoimmune cells. So he's also done a clinical study, a pilot clinical study with people with multiple sclerosis doing this fasting-mimicking diet for one month, sorry, for one week. And um, their their symptoms improved. Also, a ketogenic diet was done side by side, and ketogenic diet also improved symptoms of autoimmunity. So those both were done in humans. So I think that, um, you know, understanding that some of these mechanisms that are at play – and that fasting itself and caloric restriction both have been shown to improve autoimmunity. You may be tapping into something there by eating less. That's one possibility. Um, in addition, there's been st- clinical studies in humans where, that were done. Um, they were basically fasted for 24 hours every other day for 15 days. So they had like a total of seven days of fasting. Um, and these were also people with multiple sclerosis. And there's profound changes in the microbiome that started happening. And this was in, in line with basically um, having you know a lot of anti-inflammatory cytokines, uh, basically producing immune cells that are really important for preventing autoimmunity called T regulatory cells, so things like that. So that's another really important thing to consider is you know the microbiome because the microbiome has been linked to autoimmunity in multiple, multiple studies. I mean, it's been linked to arthritis. It's been linked to multiple sclerosis. It's been linked to other diseases like Parkinson's, which is not really autoimmune. But um, And the point of this is that, you know, again, understanding mechanism and realizing, you know, there's other p- potential factors that could be leading to an effect, right? It's it's actually um, the, the changes in the microbiome are really important because, There's actually been a few animal studies which have led to phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials that have been done in humans. So, um, humans with multiple sclerosis were treated with minocycline, an antibiotic, and they've been basically the antibiotic was shown to improve symptoms of multiple sclerosis. And because there's good bacteria and bad bacteria that have been linked to autoimmunity, and getting rid of getting rid of bacteria, you know, the bad bacteria is going to probably lead to improvements. And that's what was shown first in animal studies, and then in human trials. So, humans um, taking with the multiple sclerosis, taking minocycling for two years. So, basically, they had improvements. It delayed the onset um, uh, progression of, of the disease. But then, after two years, th- those improvements went away. Probably because you're wiping out the microbiome, and eventually, you're also getting rid of the, ba- the good bacteria. And so, the, things are going to catch up, right? So, you're not just, you may be getting rid of some of the pathogenic bad bacteria with the antibiotics, but eventually, like, you're also getting rid of good stuff. So, long term, you know, you're, you may not have those same improvements. And, that, and that's very interesting. I think it's a really important point to understand um, with, with something like, you know, changes, very profound changes in the microbiome. When it comes to someone just eating meat, um, so one thing to keep in mind with, with the microbiome is that basically uh, ch- bacteria really are good at adapting to their environment. That's why the antibiotic resistance is such a, a big deal. And when you, there's been human intervention studies, when you take a human that goes from a high fiber diet to a low fiber, high protein, uh, or uh, vice versa, you get changes in their gut microbiome that happen within 24 hours. So within an hour, you actually start to have doubling of populations of bacteria. And within 24 to 48 hours, you actually start to lose other, so basically other bacteria start to die off. And this is at the species level. It's really hard to change the phyla. The phyla is more linked to long-term dietary patterns. Eventually, you can change phyla as well, but um, it's been shown that people that go from a, um, a more high fiber to a high protein diet, they have changes their microbiome, and these changes are a lot of the f- microbiome, you know, bacteria that are fermenting um, a, v- a variety of fermentable fibers start to leave, and you actually start to get bacteria cropping up that ferment amino acids. So um, the amino acids, amino acids, simple sugars, fats, those are mostly absorbed in the small intestine, but Some of them make their way into the large intestine. And there's a whole, you know, um, group of bacteria called the putrefactive bacteria, and they ferment amino acids. Um, And some of these species of of putrefactive bacteria have been linked to colon cancer. Uh, They're much higher in colon cancer patients. Animal studies have shown, you know, causal links where they can basically aggressively cause a a polyp to to form a, a, you know, tumor. Um, and that's because these bacteria are making things called putrescine and cadaverine, which are damaging their genotoxic agents that damage the DNA inside your colon cells. And so um, people that are typically eating like an omnivore type of diet, where they're eating protein and they're also eating fermentable fiber, if they're eating the fermentable fiber that's facilitating the growth of lactic acid producing bacteria – it, that limits the growth of putrefactive. Be, so if you're, if you're you know, bifidobacteria, lactobacillus, S mutans, S thermophilus, those strains of bacteria are lactic acid producing bacteria, which you'd be getting if you're, I mean, you, you'd be facilitating the growth of if you're eating plants fermentable, with fermentable fiber, you're going to limit the growth of putrefactive because they can't grow with lactic acid. So it's not like, you know, you have, it's not a huge, huge concern, but the question is what happens when you're only eating Amino acids. When you're only getting amino acids, right? You know, so is there a long term? So if you're if you're if you're killing off potentially some of this um, pathogenic bacteria, and you're having this effect with a positive effect, what what's going to happen long term? It's not known. I mean, this data. I mean, it hasn't really been studied at that level.
0: There you know? have been a few people that have have anecdotal stories about doing it for ten, twenty years that are online, but it's very difficult to track. You know, I mean. It's it's the, you you take them at their word for it. They've eaten nothing but meat for 20 years. They feel amazing. Hmm. But there's not very many of them. There's a you know, yeah. there's a, well there may be more out there. But it's in terms of like what I've come across articles, uh, you know, just uh, social media profiles, people have talked about the positive benefits of it. It seems to me that most people that are talking about the positive benefits are talking about it within a one and two year window. That's that's what we're really dealing with a lot of. Um, Sean Baker, Dr. Sean Baker, who is probably the leading proponent of it or one of the poster boys of it, along with Jordan Peterson and his daughter Michaela. Uh, Jordan Peterson and his daughter Michaela, they're different in that they were dealing with severe autoimmune issues. Uh, his daughters had two joints replaced but before she was eighteen. She had her well, she had her ankle replaced before she was 18, and I think she had her hip replaced shortly after that. And um, Jordan has had some pretty severe autoimmune issues and depression. Within With both of them, those things were cleared up. But as you've talked about multiple times before on this show, depression has been linked to disorders in the gut biome. Right. And this is something that you feel like may be contributing to this, As long as as well as both of them also got very lean. Jordan right. lost a ton of weight. He's back to the weight that he was when he was 25 years old and i've eaten with him and the guy eats he eats a lot but it's a lot of meat just like he'll eat like a 30 ounce steak you know which is just crazy it's a crazy amount of meat but um i don't know how many times he's doing that a day i don't know you know yeah,
1: yeah i think I, you know going back to the 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 point it's like There are other, you know, understanding the mechanism is important, and there's a lot of potential confounding factors, right? And that, with any anecdotal data, is extremely important to consider. I mean, people can't even, you know, scientists, nutritionists, just people can't even agree on the best diet. Because a lot of these epidemiological and observational studies, which don't establish causation, have an enormous amount of confounding factors. And it is freaking, it's so hard to, like control for that. Mm. I mean, just as a perfect example, we've talked about this before in the podcast, but, you know, the vegetarian versus people that eat meat. One of the really large studies that was done, and and, and Dr. Valtolonga was part of that study, looked, you know, at all-cause mortality and cancer mortality, and it was lower in vegetarians, but they decided to take the meat eaters and say, okay, what about within this group, the people that are healthy meat eaters are people that are you know not you know not unhealthy so they're not obese they're not sedentary they're not smoking they're not alco- not excessively drinking alcohol those people when they took out that con- those confounding factors the meat eaters had the same mortality as the vegetarians yeah. And same cancer so confounding factors are so important and that with anything with anecdotal you have people that are exercising like crazy exercise has also been shown to change microbiome independent of diet um, in a positive way where you're actually producing more of the, the bacteria that are um, producing things like lactic acid. So, And fasting does the same thing, and so you have people that are fasting. So, you know, it's not like you can't do other things if you're on that type of diet to, to sort of help with the microbiome. But I think, again, if there's a way you can do, you know, if, if there's a way that you can get these benefits without having to do something so hyper-restrictive, and we'll talk about, I mean, I have concerns for that. We can definitely get into that. But um, then, you know, why not try that? And, you know, the thing with, like, for example, pr- doing, like, a prolonged fast, you know, once, once a quarter, once every couple of months, depending on how severe your, your issues are. I mean, there's, there's been benefits shown with that, like in aging. Like, you know, so people that have been put on this fasting-mimicking diet, they have improved biomarkers of aging, um, they increase their lean muscle mass. I mean, so, like I said, in animal studies, and you can't directly translate the animal studies to humans because rodents have a really fast metabolism. And if you fast them for 48 hours, they lose 20% of their body weight, where humans only lose, like, 1% or 2%. I mean, that's, like, clearly, you know, yeah. That's so, crazy. Yeah. So you can't – I mean, it's obviously you can't completely translate right. everything that's done in fasting fasting rodent to humans. But they are definitely – Organs are shrinking and then literally regrowing after the fast is over. Like it's like this rejuvenation process, you know, you're, and it seems as though selectively damaged cells are killed. In fact, this whole, like there, there's a whole, um, Dr. Balto Longo showing um, that cancer cells are really, really susceptible to dying when, they're, when you do like a, a prolonged fast or even a fasting mimicking diet. And he's, he's, he's shown this in animal studies and he's done a couple of clinical studies Uh, where where patients with cancer were treated with standard of care. But before their standard of care treatment, they were fasted for up to 72 hours. And what happens, um, what he's shown in animal studies happens is that because the fasting is a type of stress, all your healthy cells increase all these stress response pathways. They make more heat shock proteins. They're increasing antioxidant production pathways, anti-inflammatory. They're doing all this really good stuff in response. Cancer cells can't do that. They're like screwed up. And so they can't activate those stress response pathways, so it ends up killing them. So what you end up happening is that when you're giving another genotoxic stress, like chemo or radiation, your healthy cells become more resistant to the damaging effects of the radiation, and the cancer cells become more sensitized to the death. And so what he's shown in in his pilot studies in humans is that basically um, the humans that that uh, that were treated with the standard of care, I think it was chemo, and also fasted, They had less uh, neutropenia, which is the loss of like neutrophils, which is the side effect because you're losing normal healthy cells. They had less of that happening, uh, less myelosuppression. Um, So, I mean, anyways, the point is that I think if you can find a way to get positive benefits, you know, without having to do something so risky and potentially dangerous and unstudied, um, you know, in a, I mean, unstudied in a really scientific way you know yeah. controlling for compounding factors and all sorts of long term I mean just all of that—is really important
0: well this then, just comprehensive breakdown that you just did is something that's really lacking from a lot of the discussion of this carnivore diet and from the proponents of it, it uh, it's almost like a lot of them are going into it blindfolded they're like look uh, it seems to be working so I'm just going to stick with it but the, uh, again when you're talking about most people's cases, you're talking about one year, maybe two years, sometimes even less, where they're having these benefits. And as you're saying, it's entirely possible that they're setting themselves up for some potential long term damage.
1: It is. Um, it is it's definitely possible. And again, at the end of the day, there's no data. There's no data. So you can not say for sure, right? right? There's no data. But I have concerns and we can talk about those concerns for sure. I would like to. But You know, the thing is, understanding mechanism, like you said, going in blindly, I mean, you have a hypothesis, and it's like, okay, your hypothesis is all plants are bad.
0: Yeah, that's what I keep hearing. And it's like, well,
1: that's a hypothesis, but what about all the other things that are potentially happening while you're doing this diet? You're eating less, you're fasting more, your microbiome's changing, like dramatically changing, and those things all have been known. Multiple studies have shown humans and animals, mechanistic detail, to have benefits on autoimmunity, on aging in general, on brain function. I mean, all sorts of things. You know, so it's, mechanism is so important. You have to realize, I mean, that that's the whole basis of science, understanding how the world works around you, understanding how your body works, mechanisms. Like, right. you have hypothesis, and it's very... And I understand it's like someone experiences something positive. It's like, well, this must be... This right. is it. This is the end, yes. all, be all. And But you also have to realize... The shit's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> you got to understand the yeah, mechanism. Yeah, and yeah. you may be doing something uh, long term that potentially, I mean, it really hasn't been studied.
0: Yes. So, Well, that was one of the, I mean, I had Jordan's daughter, Michaela, on who's had some pretty dramatic results from this carnivore diet. But she's giving essentially nutrition consulting to people. But she doesn't really have a background in it. And she's in she doesn't have the information that you just distributed, like what you just said to all these people listening and the the way you're describing the the mechanisms and the benefits of fasting and all these different various things that are happening inside your gut. And all these different things that are happening with healthy cells and, and damaged cells with fasting and that this is mimicked by this restrictive diet and that this is all absent from the dialogue. This is all absent from the. Dis- and This is one of the things that's disturbing, the most disturbing for me. It's like, I get that they're seeing positive results. I get. I don't. i do not going to deny that they're they're seeing. But when they start saying, uh, you know, plants are bad, and there's a, you know, like my friend Chris, he's always talking about the war on carbs. He's having this. Re- he's also got Chris Bell. He's got autoimmune issues as well. He's had both of his hips replaced before he was 35 and you know severe arthritis and he is leaner than he's ever been and benefiting greatly from this carnivore diet but you know he's he's like he talks about it like he uses hashtag war on carbs you know and he doesn't eat salad he won't eat greens like he thinks greens are bad for you and i'm like man i don't not sure that's correct i think it's so important what you're saying, and um, there's a, a, a researcher online that I've been in contact with, his name is Kevin Bass, and his, Bass uh, or Bass, B-A-S-S, not sure which, how to pronounce it, but he also brought up this possibility that it could be uh, calorie restriction that these people are dealing with, and that this is essentially some of the same uh, mechanisms that are the, the positive reactions from fasting, that you're, you're dealing with here. And I'm very happy that you're saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that is one very strong possibility. And that is something, you know, there's lots of hypotheses here. And, you know, given all the data, and there's lots of positive data about eating plants as yes. well. Yes. You know, so it's it's really hard. That's one hypothesis, and that seems to be the one everyone's sort of gravitating to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if someone's also wanting to reduce their their glycemic load and all that i mean there's there are other i mean eating just a modified paleo diet i mean i eat something like a modified paleo diet where it's like i'm eating i'm eating fish i meat meat poultry and then I eat a lot of leafy greens um and cruciferous vegetables now you can do th- a nuts you know or you can do a ketogenic diet like there. like i just talked about the study um that was done looking at the fasting-mimicking diet in humans with multiple sclerosis. Um, there was uh, the same in, – published in the same um, paper, there was a study, they, they, um, study that uh, put patients on ketogenic diet for, I believe it was three months. And it improved symptoms of autoimmunity as well.
0: Was it comparable? Those, yeah. The, the yeah, improvements? Yeah. yeah. Hmm, interesting.
1: So, you know, the ketogenic diet, a modified ketogenic diet is also – you know, there's also concerns with that. Not, not everyone responds very well, and you know the micronutrient deficiencies have been a concern. But you can actually eat a lot of um,
0: vegetables, vegetables, yes. green,
1: good ones that are yeah. that are low in glycemic. So Spinach, my concerns, broccoli. exactly. My yeah. concerns are much much less. Yeah. Um, and there's it's been studied a lot more. I mean, at least there's been lifespan studies in mm-hmm. animals on ketogenic diet, where it's like improving, you know, the way they age. It's improving their cognitive function, brain aging, extending their lifespan. So, mm-hmm. you know, if people are looking for in addition to, you know, wanting to like help with their autoimmunity issues. You know, there's also if it's like, well, I also just don't want to have a lot of insulin response. I want to lower my glycemic levels and things like that. Um, It seems like a much better option than than doing something completely unstudied. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that's a really good place to start and obviously not disregarding everyone's anecdotes and of course there's also the placebo and nocebo effect which are very real i mean mm-hmm. extremely real, real it's why a lot of drugs don't ever make it to market is because they can't beat placebo you know where it's like people think they're going to get a positive response from something they can right and the opposite is true people think they're going to get a negative response for something
0: they can There's got to be a way to market the placebo effect in a pill form and i think sell it's it to great people. i
1: think <laughs> So, And what's interesting is that genetics determines that. There's SNPs, um, gene, basically single nucleotide polymorphisms where it changes in the sequence of DNA in a certain gene makes it uh, function a little differently. Well, the gene that's really important, seems to be really important for either whether or not you're going to have a placebo versus nocebo, is in, controls dopamine, the degradation of dopamine. So hmm. people that are really uh, likely to, for a placebo response have more dopamine in their brain.
0: Whoa. It's called
1: CompT, the SNP. Uh, in the genes called CompT. People that have less dopamine are more subject to the nocebo. And this has been shown in dose-dependent manner in intervention trials, randomized controlled in humans. Um, and not, it's not in diet. There's been studies on diet as well showing like nocebo effects. So people think they have a gluten sensitivity, which I do think that's a real thing. I mean, I'm not saying non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I think there's enough evidence that's showed that does exist. However, there was like this great study that was published four years ago showing people that thought they were, you know, having gluten sensitivity issues. They were, they were randomized and um, none of them were given gluten, but they didn't know that. They thought maybe there's a chance I'm going to get the gluten. I don't know. I'm being randomized. Of course, they had a negative response. They had distended, bloating, pain, but there was no Whoa. gluten. So the nocebo effect is also real. And that's something to keep in mind as well if you think – You know, I'm going to have a bad response if I eat these plants. (laughs) You can... Hypochondriacs. Yeah, it's definitely... People who fuck themselves. Yeah. It's definitely a real thing. I think placebo is much better. Right. I think that's a great... Like, it's a great thing that that exists.
0: Especially if you could figure out a way to trick yourself. You're changing dopamine levels that
1: affects your immune system. I mean, it it affects... I talked to a
0: chiropractor who was banking on that. He was doing something called zone healing. And the more I pressed him on this... The more he basically said, well, if you believe it, it works. Yeah, I'm like, okay, so you're saying that it doesn't work unless you trick this person into believing that it works. So you're a trickster This is what you're doing. You didn't want to go that far, but that's essentially there's no real scientific basis to this idea that you press on someone's back and fix their right. thyroid.
1: I absolutely think that placebo accounts for a lot of that stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and again. Reiki, all that shit.
1: All of it. And I think that – um the, the the genetic snips involved
0: mm-hmm. really they do play a role is there a diet that increases dopamine because there's the, you can increase serotonin with htp and l-tryptophan which converts to htp 5htp what is is there anything that ramps up your dopamine you know what
1: does in the prefrontal cortex is fish oil in uh. fact schizophrenic some schizophrenic schizophrenic patients are prescribed really high dose because they they lack their dopamine's lower in the prefrontal cortex and this is sort of associated with a lot of the negative, paranoid, delusional sort
0: of... And when you say high dose, what are you talking about?
1: Oh, like six grams, anywhere between three to six grams a day. And what is a normal dose? Well, if you look at, if you're talking about normal in the sense where what's typically used in like a randomized controlled trial, it's like one, one, re,
0: one or two grams. What is recommended people like USDA or what would you recommend? Like there the, is
1: no recommended. Nothing? It's not. No, because mm-hmm. because what's recommended is the, um, so there's a plant version of it, alpha-linolenic acid, uh, because you can convert that into the marine, ome- uh, the marine omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA. Uh, that's the one that's recommended. So it's like the what you essentially need, right? So, right. so that's the one that's recommended. But um, is
0: there a concern about um, potential heavy metal poisonings when you're taking in fish oil, or is that all all that stuff? The, do they know how to filter that stuff out?
1: It's the, definitely purified out, and I mean it depends on. The fish the oil company. that, you, yeah, the fish oil you're getting your your fish oil from, but there's there's and there's um international fish oil standards organization uh, that a lot of different fish oil companies um, are tested by them and they show like they're all their arsenic, mercury, PCBs, um, dioxins, like all those you know potentially harmful compounds, and they also look at oxidized um, polyunsaturated fatty acids, so they're looking at total oxidation and things like that. So that's a really good um, site to use to look at whether, you know, your fish oil brand is. Do you
0: get yours in the pill form or do you do like Carlson's where you get it in the bottle and take spoonfuls of it?
1: So I get mine in the pill form because I I have a friend that makes it in Norway and he sort of um, has convinced me that it's like really good. So I really like his fish oil and he doesn't make it in the liquid form. Um, But I do. So I take I take about like five or six grams a day. I take a lot.
0: Wow. Five or six grams,
1: yeah, and I'm taking like a high dose DHA because um, it gets into breast milk and I, I haven't one hundred percent weaned my son just yet.
0: How many pills is five or six grams?
1: Um, it's like oh that I take, yeah, so I'm taking six
0: six, six pills. pills a day yeah oh, so each pills a gram yeah, wow so
1: um, that is high dose. It's really high dose it's it, really uh, it's a really good fish it's not he he's working on getting it available in the United States. Uh, I think that's supposed to happen, like, in the next couple of months. Mm. But um, I used to take Carlson's. Carlson's was uh, the bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lemon. that's what I take. Yeah. because you take a lot,
0: right? Yeah. So. Yeah, but um, I take three tablespoons. I thought that was a lot. How much is in? I don't know. I don't know. I'm wondering.
1: Um There's no idea. We'll I'm have full. to talk about my my Alzheimer's Omega-3 publication But we still have carnivore stuff. Yeah, let's
0: keep going. I'll I'll put that aside because (laughs) I actually have a good friend whose dad has Alzheimer's, and I sent her your um, clip from your Instagram from yesterday. Oh, cool. You know about
1: that too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we will. I'll send you my paper. It was just accepted, um, and uh, it should be out online this month, sometime this month. But um, okay, so okay, my potential concerns with carnivore diet. Yes. um, You know, I think. And I'm sure I mean, I know this, I've seen it all over the blogospheres you know the 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 micronutrients, and you know they don't really mm-hmm. matter they the RDAs weren't set for carnivores and all this all this stuff that i've I've read. But I think to start out like understanding you know micronutrients are essential about thirty vitamins and minerals that are really important. They, they do run our metabolism. They are involved in making neurotransmitters. They're involved in, you know, pulling calcium out of our arteries and bringing it to our bones. They're involved in all sorts of things. Not, people, when they hear the word metabolism, they always just think about, you know, food you Fat. eat. Yeah. And it's like metabolism refers to a lot of things. And there's about 22, um, sorry, there's 22% of all your enzymes in your body require a micronutrient to function. Um, and this is repairing damage from DNA, all sorts of things. Really important, um, and and so there's about thirty of them that are essential. You have to get them for your diet because you don't make them in your body, and if you don't get them from your diet, it can lead to you know health problems and death. Actually, so so that's that's kind of you know what micronutrients are. RDAs, so recommended dietary allowance. Um, those have been set. A variety of different studies are used. So there's randomized controlled trials, non-randomized controlled trials. There's depletion-repletion studies. There's balance studies looking at how much, how long, how much of a micronutrient it takes before you start excreting it. Um, there's cross-sectional studies and there's case studies. And this is a collaboration between the United States and Canada and some European uh, countries as well. So a lot of experiments are done to f- to figure out um, the recommended dietary allowance. The first thing that's done is the the estimated average. Um, the, the SEAR, the Estimated Average rec, um, Intake. So um, that is done by basically looking at any population and going, okay, how much of this micronutrient do we need so that 50% of the population has adequate levels, the other 50% will be deficient. So like, there's a bell curve. And so it's like literally in the middle of the bell curve. And then the RDA is set from that two standard deviations above. And it's supposed to make you know, about 97.5% of the population gets enough. So that's how the the RDA is set. For each micronutrient, it's different. The the experiments are done are different to look at them. So there's a few concerns, of course, with an all-meat diet with particular micronutrients. Because, you know, micronutrients, there's a lot of, you know, certain micronutrients that are concentrated in meat. And there's a lot that are concentrated in plants. And you can find some of the ones that are more concentrated in meat, in plants, in in most cases, um, but it's much better to get it from the meat. And in plants, there's, it's much more concentrated, you know, and you can find it in some amounts in meat, but it's much, you know, it's a lot easier to get it from the plants. So uh, one of the, of course, the micronutrients that's a concern is the vitamin C, of course, right? That's, right. that's the one that everyone talks about. So vitamin C is a really important cofactor um, for what that means. A cofactor just means that it binds to an enzyme and helps it work. It's important for making collagen. It's important for converting dopamine into norepinephrine, which is important for that flight-or-flight you know, flight response. Um, it plays a role in, in uh, making carnitine, which is important for using fatty acids for, you know, for energy. Um, and then it's, a, of course, an antioxidant. It also plays a really important role in, in neutrophils. So neutrophils are uh, a type of immune cell when they're activated, when you have any sort of bacterial exposure, um, virus, uh, things that can even come from the gut, you know, like LPS, leak out from dead bacteria that are uh, dying in the gut. Um, Neutrophils get activated and they soak up vitamin C because they release a bunch of hydrogen peroxide, which damages the neutrophil itself. And so the vitamin C sort of prevents that from happening. Uh, It plays a a, a really important role in... um, cell, cell integrity and things like that. So the, the, um, there's a variety of ways vitamin C is transported into the cell. And I see, uh, reading on the internet, a little bit of misunderstanding, um, people following the carnivore diet seem to think that because they're not getting any, uh, their glucose levels are low that they're getting more vitamin C in. So, yeah. so vitamin C, um, also called ascorbic acid, uh, goes between two different states. Or ascorbic acid is the reduced form, which is the antioxidant form. It, it, it goes also into an oxidized form. So it's kind of going back and forth. It goes through about four cycles of that. The oxidized form is called dehydroascorbic acid. And there's two ways that you transport vitamin C. Uh, you absorb it through the gut epithelial cells. It's transported into a variety of tissues in the body. Ascorbic acid goes through sodium-dependent vitamin C transporters. Those are not dependent on glucose. There's no competition for glucose. They, that's, that's how vitamin C gets into the, the cell. Uh, and most cells actually transport vitamin C in, in that form with the exception of red blood cells, which don't have that transporter. They use another transporter called glucose transporters or GLUT. And that one does, glucose does compete. Uh, interestingly, dehydroascorbic acid binds much better. Uh, it's actually tightly more bi- binds to the transporter than um, glucose. But in conditions like um, hyperglycemia, like type one or type two diabetics they actually don't get vitamin c in the red blood cells and it leads to like vascular problems and stuff like that so so um it's an interesting hypothesis that maybe if you're having you know less of a um your you know blood glucose levels are really bottomed out maybe there maybe that there's some salvage pathway you're able to help get vitamin c and the oxidized form is going in some other cells that usually doesn't go in or whatever something like that it's an interesting hypothesis which is there's no data on right um, but the experiments that were done to choose the RDA for vitamin C were done, um, the, the more recent RDA, so that it changed back in like 2000, after 2000 or 2001 or something. It's about 90 milligrams a day for men and uh, 75 for women. They were, they were depletion, repletion studies. So uh, men were, were given about less than five milligrams a day of vitamin C diet, with their diet. And this was about a six-month study. They were in a metabolic ward. And um, it was determined that uh, it was kind of unsafe to keep, to keep going. So, so basically, they started the repletion, where uh, they started giving uh, the P- these men vitamin C at different doses. And uh, vitamin C follows like a sigmoidal S-curve. So once you kind of deplete someone of their vitamin C, when you give them, for example, 30 milligrams, it isn't really enough to kind of go – it doesn't really raise plasma levels much. You have to get up to like 100. Once you get up to like 100, then you actually start to excrete vitamin C. But before that, you're just your body's holding on to everything. You're not excreting anything. 200 milligrams was uh, maximum bioavailability, and then after that, um, you start to like in- decrease bioavailability, and you're excreting a lot of vitamin C. So the the new so the scientists that published this paper, Mark Levine at the NIH. Um, recommended that the RDA be set at 200 milligrams, but it was set at 90, which is literally right before you start to excrete, which was 100 milligrams. That data, along with the neutrophil data, there was some neutrophil data that was looked at, um, you know, how much vitamin C was important to, because neutrophils sop it up, to prevent that hydrogen peroxide-induced damage. And so that's kind of how the RDA was set. Um, now, the question is, in any with any RDA, like, you know, the the important thing to consider is, well, the RDAs are set to prevent acute disease, but what about promoting optimal health? You know, like that's really important. Like how much of these micronutrients do you need throughout a lifespan to to, you know, to maintain optimal health and age well? So this is something that's really important because a lot of enzymes that require a micronutrient for preventing short term disease, something that can kill you, like There's also enzymes that are required to prevent, you know, things that are associated with aging, like DNA damage. So if there's only so much of a micronutrient around, which, where is it going to go? Is it going to go where the, you know, is it going to prevent DNA damage, which doesn't make a difference until five or six decades later? Or is it going to make sure you live on to pass on your genes and, you know, reproduce? And so um, my former postdoctoral mentor, Dr. Bruce Ames, sort of proposed this whole and he um, has published a, a couple of foundational papers um, supporting this idea, which is he calls triage theory. So he's saying that basically he thinks actually a lot of RDAs are too low and that, you know, optimal RDAs will account for, you know, how much is needed for these long-term functions. So that's really important to consider. With the vitamin C, you um, you know, it's it's it's, it's really a, a small amount that's needed to 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 be used as a cofactor for, you know, an enzyme for you know collagen production. You actually don't need that much. And so it was done. Like studies were done years years ago that um, established like 10 milligrams of vitamin C was enough to prevent scurvy, um, which can happen when you're basically you don't have enough vitamin C for for collagen production. And um and even that's kind of questionable because back at the time when those studies were done, it was before. Really good analytical assays were available. So, you know, the assay that was done to measure um, various things were, it was lots of things could confound. So it's, it's, it, may, it may even be less, maybe more, maybe less. It's kind of not unknown. So, um, you know, that, that, that is something to consider as well as the fact that basically there's a lot of biological variation with um, vitamin C requirements. And this has been shown uh, in other animals that also require vitamin C, like guinea pigs. So, like, if you take 100 guinea pigs, and this is, you know, this was published back in, like, 60s or 70s. Um, like, there was, like, tenfold variation in how much each of them required vitamin C they required, even though they were given, like. Wow. Yeah. So tenfold? Tenfold, even, yeah. So, there's, like, huge variation in the half-life of vitamin C and in their transporters. And, like, you know, so this has been shown in rodents as well. Rodents make vitamin C in their liver, but the same thing's been shown. And actually, back when the, the European sailors were getting scurvy, and dying of it, only about fifty percent, only about half of those sailors got scurvy. The other fifty percent didn't have any symptoms. Now, how is a carnivore
0: diet guy's not getting scurvy? Well, that's
1: that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you know, for one, it doesn't take much,
0: right? Right. And they're getting some of it from meat.
1: Yeah. 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 So, so the thing, um, you know, if it, it it doesn't take much to to maintain the enzymatic fact, uh, function um, of some of the, some of the enzymes involved in making collagen. And that, you know, so it doesn't take much for that. But the question is about what about, you know, all the host of all order the, factors. Yeah. And the neutrophils and, mm. um, you know, your body stores like orders of magnitude more vitamin C than 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 it needs for that for the for its function as a cofactor. And it's like, you know, why does it do that? Is it just because maybe during scare, food scarcity you want it wants to make sure it has enough or is there, you know, the antioxidant functions and other functions really important or other unknown functions? So I think the vitamin C, you know, they're certainly you know getting enough to prevent scurvy, and there could
0: be biological variation in that as well, right? right?
1: You don't need much to prevent scurvy.
0: And again, you're you're dealing with a very small sample size. You don't know how many people are actually on this diet, or and how supplementing, many of them are reporting, or, right. right? How many of them are supplementing, and why wouldn't they be? Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and you s- think that a lot of these issues could be prevented with just multivitamin supplementation? Well, I mean, Potential there,
1: I think the best thing is to get it from food, food. and we'll talk sure. about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so that the, there's another one that's potentially risky and that is vitamin E, which kind of um, vitamin E helps recycle vitamin C and vitamin C helps recycle vitamin E and vitamin E actually uh, most people think of it as an antioxidant, which it does. It prevents a lot of oxidative um, chains. It's kind of breaks the chain of oxidation, but it also is really important for maintaining cell integrity. And that's the, how the RDA was chosen for that one. So, um, How does it do that? So it, it's, it's important for inside the cell membrane. So it's, a, it's important antioxidant inside the cell membrane. And so it, it's preventing a lot of oxidative factors that are happening just from normal metabolism, normal. It's happening. You and I are doing it right now. Uh, you know, damage that damages our DNA. It also damages the, the lipids in our, in our cell membranes. And so, so vitamin E it plays a really important role in the integrity of it. And so um, the experiments that were done for choosing the RDA for vitamin E were two and a half years long, and um, men were given three milligrams of vitamin E. So the RDA is 15 milligrams. So they were given three. And after two and a half years, they started getting hemolysis of their red blood cells because the red blood cell, um, the membranes of the red blood cells weren't being maintained very well. After two and a half, it took two and a half years, a long time for, you know, for this to show up. And so, um, for whatever reason, it was decided that having hemolysis happen lower than 12% is okay. 12% was the cutoff. And so, they, when they did the repletion studies, it was 15. It was actually 12 milligrams. And then it, for the EAR, and they went up two standard deviations and found 15. Uh, basically, the RDA was set at 15. So the question becomes: Well, all right, so vitamin E—you can, you know, you can get some vitamin E if you're getting some egg yolk and butter, and if you're eating some fish. But you're not going to—it's really hard to get 15 milligrams from from those sources and and then if you're eating that what about all the other stuff you have to eat to get your other you know so what is a good source of it um nuts are really really the best source like almonds like 100 grand 100 grams of almonds would like give you your rda really good source um so uh so the question becomes well okay you know you know what happens if i'm only getting seven milligrams a day is it going to take you know six or seven or eight years before my cell membrane integrity is compromised more. You know, what, you know, so it's just there's a lot of important questions to think about, you know. And it's like these RDAs, you know, they. I would even argue they're set too low in some cases where you're. they're really trying to just prevent things like, you know, that are like hemolysis of the red blood cells. And, you know, so what about all these other long-term effects, um, you know, enzymes that are involved in DNA repair, for example. And another one would be like folate. Uh, folate you can get if you eat. You know, if you're eating, like, 150 grams of, like, cooked beef liver every day, but, like, who does that, you know? I mean, and if you're not doing that and you're eating – got to eat, like, your 48 sardines to get your vitamin E and you got you know, so it's, right. like – it's not easy. And, you know, I'm not saying you can't get, you know, some amounts of it, but you may not be getting the RDA. And so, you know, folate plays a very important role in actually making new DNA. You know, if you don't have folate, you essentially incorporate something from RNA called uracil into DNA – And all your like DNA, you know, polymerases and stuff are cruising along DNA and see it and they make a nick in the DNA and it literally, you know, it's a, it's a nick. It's like in your, in your DNA. And if you have it, DNA is double-stranded. So if you have it on two ends of the DNA, which you do, because it's really important to make one of the nucleotides, thymine, then, you know, you're going to have a double-stranded break. And actually my former postdoctoral mentor, Dr. Bruce Ames, published a study showing that if you take animals and, um make them deficient in folate or give them really, really low levels of folate, it causes strands in their DNA just like being irradiated. Like he compared them side by side. It was the ex- exact same thing. And then he um, published a, a study that was with humans showing that actually humans that are getting really low um, levels of folate also had a certain type of DNA damage called micronuclei. You know, so the question is, well, y- you know, if, I, if I'm if i getting only so much folate, you know, is is... It's something happening to my DNA. Am I getting strand breaks? The same goes for magnesium. I mean, you can get magnesium if you're eating, you know, this, it's just, then what about the folate? And then what about the vitamin E? And the, you know, so it's really hard. It's really hard uh, to, to do that. And DNA damage, that's something you can't measure. You're not going to go, your lipid panel isn't going to tell you that. There's no consumer test available. There was a, a, a few years ago, a, a startup tried doing it, but it's really hard uh, because there's if you're sending blood samples, um, you know, to, to a lab to, to be tested for DNA damage, I have done many DNA damage experiments on um, humans, so clinical studies. I was involved in Dr. Ames' lab, um, and I've done studies, kinetic studies, where we took blood out of a patient, measured DNA damage immediately, or froze it down, or we let it sit on a bench for 30 minutes, two hours, four hours, overnight. After two hours, all the d- tons of DNA damage started to come up because it's being exposed, the, the you know, oxygen and all that is um, creating basically DNA damage. So anyways, the point is is that DNA damage isn't something you're going to measure. You don't feel it, and you're not going to feel it. I mean, it's happening in us right now. We don't know it's happening, but it is. We have enzymes that are repairing that damage, and those enzymes require magnesium. Um, we're getting enough folate to make sure that that damage isn't happening. And again, you can get a good amount of folate. Liver is one of the best, is a really great source. But you have to eat it every day, and you have to eat like, you know, I guess 150 grams of liver is not that much, but you have to eat it every day, you know. Um, so it's, it's just really important to consider these, you know, the fact that these micronutrients are important. They have long-term effects. I mean, the two and a half years it took to show the, the hemolysis in red blood cells, two and a half years. So what happens if you're getting a modest amount, not quite three milligrams, but you're getting twice that, or maybe you're getting nine? You know, what happens seven years from now? Like, you don't know. It's, and it's important. It's your health. It's important. So I think that, so those, you know, and there's a a variety of other manganese you can also get if you're eating a lot of, like, uh, stomach lining tripe. Is that what it's called? Tripe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's not like you can't get it.
0: But but, they are not, most of these people that are carnivore diet are just eating
1: beef. Right. And especially if the people are working a job where they go into it office nine to five, or they're traveling, and it's really hard to eat all this cool, like, you know, the the Inuits were eating things like raw, like, they're eating raw liver, raw, like, raw whale blubber and spleen. Spleen's a good source. I mean, you can get vitamin C from spleen, um, I think, heart. So there's some organs. Vitamin C, when you cook it, 25% of, you know, it's lost. So that's why a lot of the muscle meat and stuff, it does start out with vitamin C, but when you cook it, I mean, if you're not eating it raw, then... You know, you're, you're definitely, it's negligible. You
0: know? There is one young guy who is a uh, carnivore diet proponent that seems to be approaching this in a much more comprehensive way. He's really big on organ meats, in particular liver and many other things. And he's talking about how these organ meats uh, will uh, be excellent sources of a lot of the vitamins that people are concerned that you're missing from vegetables you do you think that that is possible and i mean spleen i guess for vitamin c yeah but like what what about just liver or kidneys or things along those lines i mean what what are you going to be deficient in if you go the organ meat route
1: i mean i think that you know if you're the 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 magnesium and um uh the magnesium hey, Jamie, would be important while you're out
0: there can you get me another one thanks
1: um magnesium but you can get i mean it's you can do it right? right i mean you can do it but um it seems very difficult and
0: i don't think most people will do it and you recommend of course getting all this stuff from food if you were going to get magnesium vitamin C, all those things. right but it, it, is it feasible that you could just supplement with multivitamins and and cover I all your bases you don't i don't so? know i
1: mean i think the same goes for vegetarians i think they should you know, they do supplement. They take B twelve, mm-hmm. um, they take iron, which isn't necessarily I think it's much better to take iron get iron from food. It's not as
0: bioavailable in a pill form.
1: Well, also the bioavail the, the pill form has been shown to disrupt other things, like whereas iron from food also? doesn't. It just depends on the ratios of other things like, you know, disrupt disrupting the transport of other um transition elements and things like that. Because it's isolated? Also, Yeah. Something about that. Also, there's bacteria in the gut that um, that can be pathogenic and that use iron, but it seems to be only in supplemental form that that's I'm not saying you should never supplement. I mean, I supplement iron throughout my uh, third trimester, but I just think that you're going to potentially run into more problems Mm -hmm. um, with that.
0: You but know, iron does it. It does come from red meat, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. iron's very bioavailable when it's bound to hemoglobin versus
0: um, so phytate. vegetarians just ate red meat, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, Zinc's I see the another problem.
1: one. You know, there's 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 I think that that there's a whole other host of micronutrients that vegetarians are sure, there, but that's not what we're talking yeah, okay, about. So right, right. I think you know, um, there's also other important reasons to eat. the the plants instead of doing just the organ meat and also just doing the supplements as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of those, the reasons um, have to do with the fact that microbiome is really important. So you're getting, you know, the fermentable types of fiber that are really important for, you know, growing all sorts of commensal bacteria in the gut. Like we don't know what's going to happen with, you know, someone that's only just eating meat long term. Um, particularly with, like I said, the putrefactive bacteria and all that. I
0: mean, that's just the word big, putrefactive bacteria. They putrefy. Yeah, that's the
1: the putrefy There's putrefactive bacteria also that are like on corpses and stuff. Oh, In great. fact, that's where I think the cadaverine comes from. The word they produce something. Cadaverine. Right. That, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it must be word. Putrefactive. Putre-
0: yeah. <laughs> and cadaverine ugh. sounds disgust Sounds like farts sounds like P- they actually are death. yeah they
1: do the the petri- i think there's a response from the
0: <laughs> yeah makes makes really nasty parts,
1: um but you know like that so that's another reason and then the other po- the other important thing are the phytochemicals the the there's these you know polyphenols flavanols flavonoids, all these things that are present in plant the humans were we evolved eating we evolved eating them you right. know so so the the it's during throughout human evolution, you know, humans were stressed on very, many levels. One, they went through moments of food scarcity where the fasting came in. I mean, that's important, right? right. Now we don't have that; we, we can get food all the time, anytime, right? So, so that was an important um, uh, stress that humans have evolved with. Exercise, aerobic exercise, right? That's another thing. I mean, you had to you had to move to get food and run from predators. I mean, so we. We evolved exercising. Now you can – so many people don't do that. We also evolved eating plants and meat. I mean, we're omnivores. So we have these – basically all these pathways that are activated when we eat plants and from certain compounds in plants, into insect they're, they're They're in plants, and when humans eat them, they basically activate a variety of really, really important stress response pathways. A lot of these pathways get activated by exercise – and fasting as well. So there is a lot of overlap between them. But I see a lot of people, you know, on, the, on this carnivore diet talking about how they're so bad for you. And if they would take the time to actually read studies, like human studies, where people are given a lot of these insect antifeedant compounds, things like isothiocyanates, like sulforaphane, um, you know, curcumin, uh, resveratrol, anthocyanins, I and mean, there's tons and tons of them you know, they would see that there's beneficial effects that happen, and there's a lot of mechanism for why that is, you know. So, I mean, the sulforaphane is one that I like to talk about, and there, are, there is tons and tons of human intervention data where people are given either cruciferous vegetables or they're given broccoli sprout. Broccoli sprouts are a really great source. Cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, uh, cabbage, fermented cabbage, um, Brussels sprouts You know, all that stuff. So broccoli sprouts have like anywhere between 10 and 100 times more. A lot of that work was done by Dr. Jed Fahey, a friend of mine. He's at Johns Hopkins. Very great scientist. Does a lot of research on sulforaphane. But, um, you know, if you look at intervention trials, we were talking about air pollution. Like there's an intervention trial. There's more than one showing in humans showing that if you give humans broccoli sprout extract for seven days, they start to excrete benzene and acrolein, benzenes in air pollution. 60% on day one, like they start excreting it in their urine, like you're just getting rid of that. And that's largely because sulforaphane activates um, a, a variety of enzymes, one called phase two detoxification enzymes, which are important for getting rid of uh, potentially harmful compounds. It inactivates phase one biotransformation enzymes, which are enzymes that are able to like take a pro carcinogen and turn it into a carcinogen. So. Um, you know, there's intervention trials in humans that it's, you know, men that were given broccoli sprout expra- extract uh, lowered their, their, their biomarker for prostate cancer um, by, by like 86 percent or lowered the doubling rate of it by 86 percent. You know, so this is like this is important. There's studies showing that humans given, for example, two different studies showing that humans given 300 grams of Brussels sprouts a day. One, they increase a really important antioxidant in their plasma called glutathione um, by like 1.4 fold. And they decreased oxidative DNA damage in their blood cells, DNA damage, like we were just talking about. They decreased it, um, like, by 30% or something like that. Two separate studies, Brussels sprouts. And I, liked, I see people, like, you know, um, talking about the carnivore diet and how sulforaphane increases DNA damage. And they, like, reference this in vitro study where they dump— sulforaphane on cultured cells in a dish. It's like, you know what else is gonna do that shit? Heterocyclic amines from the cooked meat you're eating. Like, you know, so so if you dump something at a you know high enough concentration, yeah, it's gonna fuck it up. Yeah. You know? But we're talking about humans ingesting. If you were to exercise nonstop and not rest, it would be toxic. If you were to fast and not stop, it would be toxic. Like, you know, so 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 how some of these pathways are working is that they're the dose that they're given, you know, eating, it's, it's almost impossible to, to eat the kind of dose that it would take to, to cause severe damage. And you know what? You would get sick. You would know. You'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> like right. So, So I mean, I think that using that as an excuse is really, um, first of all, they should read the studies. And there's so many more studies. It's, it's been shown recently to increase glutathione in the brain. Human intervention studies. Humans that were given sulforaphane extract. Increase it in their plasma. And in their brain, glutathione is one of the major antioxidants in the brain. It plays a major role in traumatic brain injury, brain aging. I mean, this is important. Like, this is a possible therapeutic intervention. It's been shown to randomize placebo-controlled trials to improve autistic symptoms in adolescents. Open-label trials, it's been shown to improve autism autism in children. I mean, there's just study after study after study, and I'm just talking about the human ones, and there's more. There's also lots of animal studies where they're feeding omega mega doses, and, and there's, like, positive benefits. Um, there's been studies, you know, feeding, feeding humans large doses, like, something equivalent to, like, 70 or 100 grams of broccoli sprouts, which have a lot more sulforaphane than, like, Brussels sprouts do. Um, and there was no toxic side effects in the liver or thyroid That's one concern people do have. If you have hypothyroid, sulforaphane can compete with iodine for transport into the thyroid. I don't think that's usually an issue. It certainly doesn't seem to be an issue in healthy people. But, um, you know, iodine is found in seafood. I mean, you know, there are sources of iodine you can eat. So maybe someone with hypothyroid might want to make sure they're not eating like tons – like you're not like – you know kale smoothie after kale smoothie after kale smoothie like make you know right, make sure right. you know just you're having your Brussels sprouts with your with your elk meat or whatever you know i, I don't think it's a problem um so you know it, i do get a little i see i see like you mentioned dr sean baker he's like he put out a video about like he mentioned me my names talking about how i only talk about in vitro data and i'm like dude go watch my video or my interview with the expert at johns hopkins we're talking about human studies right the in vitro data is coming from what the opposite that, it, that you know, the, the damaging effects, it's in vitro. Dumping well, it on a the culture. There's,
0: there's two things going on. There's one, there's a real cursory examination of data where they and then this confirmation bias and this, the combination of the two of those things. They find one thing that sort of kind of vaguely supports what they want it to support, and then they run with it and they talk about it as if they're experts. Very dangerous. Yes. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so happy that you're talking about this. Because you can give people a real comprehensive understanding of all the different things at play. And one of the things that I get from you when I talk to you about nutrition is it's mind-boggling how many different factors are going on simultaneously in the human body when it comes to nutrition absorption when it, uh, you know in the, the various stages of the body and and how it can vary with with different people I and mean, there's so much going on right. yeah. so when someone just sorts Talking about vegetables are toxic, like oh Jesus Christ! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have like, you read any of the study? Have you just go look at the scientific data, like you But they know? want
0: it to be toxic. This is what's crazy. It's this is an ideology that's akin to veganism. It's really it's a it's a, just another side of the same mindset. It's almost like a religious mindset. <laughs> they, they, there's this hashtag You said it, meat. not me. <laughs> I did say it. Look, I'm a fucking meat eater. Yeah, I like, know you, you are. Can't, you can't <laughs> accuse me of being anti-meat. But I, I side, I eat m- more vegetables, I think, than I eat meat. I certainly, It's certainly like right up there. And I'm not giving them up. I think that's stupid. Yeah. I just, It doesn't make any sense to me. And I like them. there's this there's this weird push and you know if you look under hashtag meat heels there's all these people you know telling these stories about how they lost all this weight and they did all this this blah 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 and their health benefits and but they only want it to be because of the consumption of meat only they think that it's because of the singular aspect of their diet and the fact they've eliminated everything else but they're not they don't do any studying of elimination diets they don't do any study of the prolonged benefits of fasting and all these different things that you're talking about which i think are they're these are all factors in this really complicated thing that's going on that most likely has something to do with their gut biome and their immune system
1: right absolutely i mean those are two major confounding factors (laughs) like so major you know it's um it's important. It's just important to to approach this like a science, you mm-hmm. know, and and not like a religion, like you said, where you want to believe something, and so you just find, you know, this yeah. this study that I also see circulating around that why plants are really bad to eat. It's like they're 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 <laughs> they're insect the insect <laughs> anti nutrients or pesticides. Right, right, it's right. from my former mentor, okay, Dr. Bruce Ames, who spent his entire career. Like advocating micronutrients from vegetables and from meat and from fish. Okay. It's like so ironic. But if you actually read the paper, not only does it say it doesn't, you know, these, these insect antifeedants like sulforaphane don't cause cancer, but it, it also goes it has a whole section on heterocyclic amines from cooked meat. So if you really want to use that paper as an argument, why to not eat plants, then maybe read the paper and realize, oh, it's also talking about heterocyclic amines as well. The point of the paper was like I'm getting a little motion here I'm sorry.
0: Sorry. I'm sorry. Good. I like it. Um are out of your robot self. Ba-
1: <laughs> yeah. The point of the paper was um basically not to worry about like some of the amounts that you're being exposed to with some of these natural, you know, an- insect antifeedants mm-hmm. that are found in plants, um and some of the cooked things in meat and as well as some of the the pesticides that are found in synthetic pesticides basically that they're in such small amounts. So that was kind of the point of the paper was back in the 90s. Um and but I just think that it's a little I don't know hypocritical to use a paper, you know, as a as like and literally it's like I mean it's like proliferated everywhere. That's I see this paper all the time. Yes. It's like, well, did you read the paper? Because it has a whole section on um, on the insect antipedids from coffee, which a lot of people drink,
0: mm-hmm. and also from meat. What what there's that thing that people do where they do have a I have a joke about it in my act. About, um, I read a, st- a study that said that um, sperm can cure depression in women, and I slammed my laptop shut and I didn't read another word. I'm like, <laughs> right. I found the cure. <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is what you people, read the title, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is essentially what these people are doing. They 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 will read or recite. Oftentimes, not even read, but recite from someone else's reciting it in a video. <laughs> Who didn't read, <laughs> right? Which is what's going on with a lot of this stuff, and this is what I'm concerned with. I keep seeing all these people like, "Hey, I'm going to try the carnivore diet. Hey, try the carnivore diet. I' telling you, it's amazing." And I'm just sitting here shaking my head. I'm like, "This doesn't make any sense." Like, I don't. Why would you want to eliminate a, a massive source of bioavailable nutrients? Like, and, and then when they're talking about the negative consequences of consuming vegetables, that there's you know, d- different sort of um, toxic elements, I do remember you talking about how these stressors can actually have a positive and beneficial result when your body reacts to these stressors.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how exercise works. It's exactly how fasting works. It's exactly how heat stress from the sauna works. And it's how these phytochemicals um, – I'm calling them phytochemicals just as like a generic – C- you know, category, but mm-hmm. they're, they're these, they're compounds that are made by plants to ward off insects. Um, and, and, uh, and we evolved eating them and they activate amazing stress response pathways in, in humans, in our brain, you know, in multiple, in blood cells. I mean, it's just human intervention trials showing this. So, it, you know, you're, you're going to miss out. Like yes. you're, we evolved with, we're supposed to be stressed by exercise, by fasting, you know, doing the time restricted eating. Like that's, we're supposed to do that and we're supposed to eat some plants.
0: I think they're trying to compl- they're si- they're trying to simplify something that's incredibly complicated and they're doing it with this sort of religious fervor. This is it's very strange and I I can feel it when I talk about it where people get upset. They're mm. getting upset at me like I'm criticizing Jesus or something. It's <laughs> I know. Very weird. And again, I'm not a vegan. Right. I'm, I'm not, not a interested- vegan either. Yeah. I eat lots of meat. Yeah. You know. I think
1: you and I have had conversations about
0: The importance of meat. Yeah. So it's. Well, it's 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 a religious thing. It really is. It's the same sort of mindset that allows people to get just rabidly Republican or anything else like fill in the blanks, whatever it is. You know, look, there's a there's a it's just a thing that people do. There's for the longest. There's two different camps in jujitsu when you hear something crazy. Yeah, there's Gi and no Gi. A gi is the – it's a kimono, this white or, you know, multi – you could wear it different colors now, but they start out with white. And um, a lot of people learn their jujitsu grabbing onto the gi, you know, like sort of a judo gi or, uh, you know, karate gi and utilizing it as part of the grappling technique. And then no-gi came along and what no-gi is, they use rash guards, they don't grab the clothes, and they concentrate on control of the body with underhooks and overhooks and gable grips and things along those lines. And it became a religious battle between gi and No-Gi. And I remember sitting there watching this and it was a problem because like people would get angry, like, what camp are you in, bro? And I train both. I have a black belt and a gi, I have a black belt and no-gi. I train both of them. I think there's benefits to both of them. But there was this weird thing where you were supposed to choose sides. It's since alleviated and people realize how preposterous it is. But for a long time, like for years, the jujitsu community was split where people were angry at people who wore the gi or angry at people who wore no gi. Like my friend Eddie, Eddie Bravo, who teaches no gi, people were angry at him for teaching a system of jujitsu that didn't That's involve great. a certain type of clothing. It's the same mindset. Yeah. People just want you to believe what they believe only, and they get rabid about it. They get crazy, and I'm seeing this with this carnivore diet. And I think there's a psychological aspect of it, to it that you were talking about when in terms of this placebo effect. Then I think they, they feel like I've never felt better. I'm on this carnivore diet. I'm doing chin ups. I'm running around the block. Like
1: especially when you read about everyone yeah. feeling better, it's, yeah, it like, makes. I want in.
0: <laughs> I want in. I want in on this carnivore diet. And then there's also well, if you are doing this as opposed to the standard American diet, I think you have the same sort of response that you have when people are talking about the positive benefits of the vegan diet. I think okay. if you have a if you have a vegan diet in comparison to eating chips and fries and soda, yeah, you're gonna feel fucking amazing. And people talk about it yes. too, just like they do the carnivore and they vegans. get and they want you to do. I mean, same. there's I'm seeing the same patterns that I see with vegans, where these carnivore people are putting meat in their screen name. You know, um, meat eater Mike. You know, carnivore Carl. They're they're <laughs> fucking crazy people. They're doing the same thing the vegans do. With like, I'm the vegan warrior. I'm carnivore <laughs> yeah, Carl. Right. You know, fuck you, you plant eating, poison yeah. eating assholes. You don't even understand what you're doing to your body. I'm and then i to thrown in there too because yes. I like plants. They're like, fuck right. you. It's yeah, like, you. Yeah. You get look, thrown in. Uh, yeah. You can't. You have to pick a camp.
1: I'm not picking a camp. I'm an omnivore. <laughs> 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 I like my paleo-ish diet, and oh, I actually I'm probably so going to try strange. a little bit of a keto. I'm gonna I'm gonna experiment there a little bit too. So
0: there's some great positive uh, cognitive benefits for that. I mean, yeah. I've I've really experienced that. It's it's hard for me because what knocks me out, ironically, what knocks me out of ketosis, the, the most of my diet is fairly ketogenic, except I eat too much meat. I just I'm, I crave it. I'm You're always big hum- guy too. <laughs> well, I need I think I need a lot. I don't know. Maybe I'm just full of shit. Um, but uh, I also have a lot. Because I, you know, I hunt elk. I shoot a 400-pound animal. You got the good quality meat. It's the best, yeah. And I'll eat, you know, a fucking pound of it. So I'm eating, like, who knows how many grams of protein that is. It's something insane. But, I mean, I don't think it's a placebo effect because I've been doing this for years now. I feel pretty fucking good. You know, and we're doing this uh, fitness challenge now. That's what this thing is. Me and uh, my friend Burt Kreischer, my friend Tom Segura and Ari Shafir, for the month, we have to see who burns the most calories and gets the most MEPS. This is my zone thing. And I'm planning on killing those guys. I'm planning on literally having them try to die. Keep up with me. Sober October? Yeah, sober October. (laughs) It's going on right now. Is, so, there, is there a hot yoga and sauna involved? I'm doing it. Those pussies are just going to try to like go run around the block. But I'm doing the 15 hot yogas, plus I'm doing all sorts of other crazy. I did two one-hour hardcore cardio sessions yesterday. And then uh, today I'm going to do kickboxing for an hour and a half. Tomorrow I'm going to do an hour and a half of yoga in the morning. Then I'm going to run at night. You definitely should eat more, more elk yeah. for sure. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm planning. Yeah. I want these guys to break. That's awesome. I want to break them. Bert's getting cocky. He's posting stuff on his Instagram today.
1: I talked to Bert about some sauna. He was real into the sauna. Yeah. Uh, He was asking me. You know what else
0: he's really into? Vodka (laughs) and cheeseburgers.
1: That that actually causes you to excrete micronut like zinc and magnesium. Talk to him. Vitamin C. Yeah. The the hard that you know what else it causes you
0: to excrete? Jokes. That's part of the problem. He's goddamn hilarious when he's drunk. (laughs) It's a part of the problem. Yeah. You know. Again, balance um i I think this is a very important conversation to have because i think there's a lot of people that are enticed by the magic of this carnivore diet and i think uh i'm so happy that you are the one that can because you can do it in such a scientific manner and just sort of illuminate all the various problems and sort of explain why they are experiencing these benefits because even brilliant men like jordan peterson is a brilliant guy He's just accepting the positive benefits of this. And I don't know how far he's looked into this.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and also it's important, like the the, the, the fact that the nocebo thing, ex- experiencing bad things, you know, also things when you change your microbiome and you're going a long period of time with just eating meat. I mean, it, it, vegans that like eat meat or people that are on a low fat diet that eat fat, they s- experience negative effects I mean, because there, there are microbiome changes that do occur and can lead to discomfort and those things will eventually go away but that is also something to consider like so there may be a nocebo yes. on top of actual things that are short term and well, that it's not just people that eat meat and then all of a sudden eat some plants So, like i knew it you know yeah there there are changes that ha- take some time a little bit of time in the microbiome that may be happening because you know definitely vegans talk about the same thing people on a low fat that eat a high fat diet say the same thing i mean so you know some someone's got to be right well maybe everyone's right
0: you yeah. know, maybe
1: there's a mechanism,
0: right. the microbiome
1: changes and everyone's right.
0: Right. Your body adjusts dependent upon your diet.
1: Well, yeah. And that's, it's been shown. I mean, the microbiome does change depending on your diet. And, you know, if, if you're, if you're eating a low fat and then going to a high fat diet, you know, there's, are you're, you're making bile acids and things like that. And, you know. If you don't have a microbiome that are resistant to that, you can start to have microbiome being killed off and then it can cause inflammation. You know, the going from the plant I mean, you're you're basically selecting for if you're eating a bunch of protein, you've got a lot of putrefactive bacteria, maybe less of the other. You know, maybe it takes some time to be able to like ferment some of those, you know, complex carbohydrate fermentable fibers and stuff. So I think that there's the mechanism, I mean it's not even easy to figure out mechanism, but there's usually a mechanism and an explanation. For the four things. And you know, sometimes you have a hypothesis and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not. You know, but it doesn't mean what you're experiencing isn't real. It just means that you don't you didn't understand why you were experiencing. You thought you did, but you didn't.
0: Michaela Peterson said that when she first got on the carnivore diet, she had diarrhea for six solid weeks. Wow. That would uh that she would sh- push through would, it. <laughs> that would, no pun intended, shake me loose. Wow. And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> After about two weeks, i be like, I'm kind of tired of shitting my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is six weeks. That's a lot, yeah. But that's... for her, it was worth it in comparison to the the the, the negative effects that she was having right. on her immune system. I mean, yeah, she's... you might want to
1: talk to her about the fasting. I mean, mm-hmm. trying that if she's open minded. You know, at the end of the day,
0: it's hard when someone's experiencing it, really positive benefits. It is, it is benefits. hard,
1: and and it is hard when they. That's just you know yeah i I, I get that, uh, but it also is important to to realize that this is there it hasn't been proved that right. you know it she's experiencing what she's experiencing because she's cut all plans out, and you know so at the end of the day, you know there there is no data, so you can't say definitively, but I mean there's a lot of data on you know, why you should include some plants at least. And, and again, if you're doing this for an autoimmune, there's a lot of really good data that fasting helps. Like, And it not only helps, it helps you age. Like I'm going to start doing just like, you know, some, some fast like a couple times a year once I've completely uh, weaned my son. How many days? So it, so a prolonged fast, take, but, um, technically in humans, according to Dr. Valjolongo, he, um, he thinks that it has to be more than 48 hours. So you can do like a 72-hour fast. And my in-laws have been doing, they've done like a couple of three, three-and-a-half-day fasts. And they're getting all sorts of massive improvements in a variety of biomarkers, uh, you know, lipid and glucose and inflammation. and You know, a lot of things that I know carnivore people are talking about as well, but could be getting the same thing with fasting. And um, when you're
0: doing this, are you limiting the amount of
1: exercise you do? Some people do. It depends on how you feel. I mean, you know, you certainly, I think that... If you're doing, if you're if you're not eating any food and you're just doing like a water fast, um, you certainly it's it, it could be more dangerous and you should listen to your body. And if you feel really sick or your heart's racing or anything, just you should eat. I mean, it's something that like I wouldn't, you know, just
0: water really, fast really do. as opposed to what other kind um, of fast?
1: the fast. There's a fasting mimicking diet where people can. This is something Walter Longo has published on in humans and study um, humans as as well as as animal data, where it's like a very you know, like the first day, it's like a thousand calories, um, and the second through fifth day, it's like seven hundred calories, and then they're they're broken up. Where it's like the first day, it's like it's very much a low sugar, low protein, um, high fat, modest carb kind of diet.
0: So, what are the foods the pro- that they consume? Like nuts and not?
1: Yeah, he, well, he's got like a packaged kind of thing that people okay. like can be prescribed. Like a physician can prescribe it to a, a patient. You know. But um, um, you, can, you can sort of make your own as well with, you know, whole, f- whole foods, you know, like... Avocados, avo- coconut oil. Like an avocado, some... Yeah, but you have to sort of keep the calorie cap. So make sure mm-hmm. you're not, like, getting too many calories. That's, right. that's kind of important as well. And you do that for five days. What does
0: a standard avocado, standard size avocado contain in terms of calories? I don't know. Okay. don't know. No.
1: Um, so... But yeah, you can do, like, like, you could definitely do, like, an avocado... If, you, if it's, like, the whole day. And then some people have sort of done, done modified versions of it as well, like where it's a little more ketogenic. Like, the, the they've adjusted the carbohydrate and fat to be a little more of the ketogenic. And like I said, um, the the study that was published in parallel with the fasting-mimicking diet study, the fasting-mimicking diet they did for three months, but it was only one week that they did the fasting-mimicking diet. So the, the, the other, you know, part of the three months they were eating a Mediterranean-like diet. The other... People in, which was in Germany, um, they were on a ketogenic diet and they were on it for three months and they experienced improvements as well. So um, there's definitely um, ways to tweak it. And actually, the getting to the Alzheimer's, um, the the so the the guy that I interviewed, Dr. Dale Bredesen, um, he he is published extensively and also has clinical a lot of clinical experience where he's, he's trying to understand the mechanism of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm getting to this for the, the ketogenic is going to come back eventually. Um, but so he, he tries to understand a lot of the underlying mechanisms for Alzheimer's disease. And in his clinical experience, he sort of sees there's subtypes of Alzheimer's where you, you can get like patients that have a really high inflammatory, where they've got lots of inflammatory biomarkers. Um, they also have this high fasting blood glucose. They're little, like, you know, high-fasting insulin. But then you can get the same sort of metabolic um, effect where you have people that are kind of on the insulin-resistant spectra, but without inflammation. There's that subtype, and then there's, like, another subtype where it's, like, it seems like a big environmental component, like, toxic stuff people are being exposed to. And that leads to a much, much earlier diagnosis in Alzheimer and a sort of different phenotype. But um, he has this really aggressive and very thorough protocol. That's like on the individual level where people, you know, he has tons and tons of biomarkers that are measured. One is the fasting blood glucose. It should be less than 5.5. Actually it's um, HbA1c, which is a three month marker of fasting blood glucose. Should be less than 5.5. Fasting insulin should be less than seven. He's got your high sensitivity c reactive protein should be less than 0.8. And then he has a variety of other inflammatory biomarkers that are also measured. Um, And a variety of other things. He looks at a lot of different micronutrients. He looks at uh, homocysteine. Homocysteine is really important because um, there's publications showing that if you lower homocysteine, it can act He actually published this in um, one patient. It reversed the hippocampal atrophy, which is kind of amazing. So there, you know, it's not really known exactly what the mechanism is, but so that's something he looks at. And he does this diet, um, this like. Diet, this whole lifestyle change, I mean, improving sleep, exercise, and he gives them all sorts of vitamins and fish oil. But on top of that, he's this diet that he, it's kind of like to lower the inflammation and improve the um, insulin sensitivity and blood glucose and all that, where he puts them on a diet that's kind of like, he calls it KetoFlex, but it's kind of like a, a ketogenic diet, modified ketogenic diet, but a lot of the, the fats are coming from like plant sources. So like avocado, nuts, olive oil. He treats meat as a condiment. Um, but, um, and, and basically he's getting improvements like with, with this type of diet, lowering inflammation, improving all sorts of metabolic things. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting. I've, I've read a lot of his studies cause he, he publishes a lot on, uh, Alzheimer's disease and mechanisms, you know, and he's, he's got a book out as well where he kind of goes in depth about it. Um, so it, it certainly seems very interesting that he's, he's actually been able to, to, to not only like delay Alzheimer's disease, but reverse it. And this is He has published a couple of published studies where people were able to go back to work and actually um, in some of the in some cases their brain atrophy uh, kind of stopped and it started to reverse where they were like growing more neurons. Wow. Yeah. So and I talked to him about this. And so the publication was like the original one I had read, which got me interested in his work in the first place. When I saw that, I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. It was only on 10 patients. so It was kind of low. He says now he's got like 50 more that they're, he's getting ready to publish. And then he's, you know, got this whole protocol where there's like just he's got like thousands of, of, of patients where they're like kind of treating this sort of individual way. They do genetic testing, blood testing and all that stuff as well. So um, it's very interesting because it's, you know, he's, he's basically showing the important interaction between diet, lifestyle and potentially genetics. And this is kind of where my paper comes in. Because um, there, is a, there is a gene that um, increases the risk for Alzheimer's if you have one copy of it. So you get two copies of every gene from one from mom, one from dad. If you have one copy of it, it increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease by like two to threefold. If you have two copies, it could be anywhere between 10 and 15-fold. So it's like really – it's called APOE4. It also increases the, the, your um, chances of having a really poor outcome if you have any type of TBI. Um, and people with that, that um, allele – and have TBI, multiple TBIs, um, definitely are much more likely to come down with some sort of neurodegenerative disease. So, um, But not everyone with it gets it. So there's like this, like, what's going on here? You know, there's, there seems to be this clear, you know, gene-environment interaction going on. And so um, I, I uh, was really interested in this because I found out I had one of these alleles. And, uh, of course, that got me really concerned. Um, one of the things that's really, really important is sleep. Because sleep is the, one of the ways you actually clear away amyloid plaques from your brain. Your brain actually swells during sleep. Um, you, you squirt cerebral final fluid into your brain and you basically clean out amyloid plaques and a bunch of other gunk that's you know built up. It's a car wash for your brain while you sleep. Yeah. And um, I talked about this with uh, former guest years, Dr. Matt Walker. We talked about oh. it a lot. He's like him and I were just like, it was awesome. I, I just I could have talked to he him. He was a mind blower. Oh, yeah. I love I love it. Um, I really loved the conversation I had with him. Uh, so we talked about this in detail because um, basically that is one of the major ways you, you you clear amyloid plaques. But the other way is through an APOE-mediated mechanism. And APOE-4 um, does it like 20-fold less efficiently than someone that doesn't have it. Oh. And so they rely on sleep. And there's all sorts of studies with APOE-4 showing Sleep is a major modifiable risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. If you have ApoE4 but you're getting good quality sleep, you have like the same risk as someone that doesn't have it. And so I was like, gee, you know, of course I was thinking about this the entire time that I had my son and I was like not sleeping for months. Right. But anyways, um, the other thing that I looked into in my publication, and this is where um, the another sort of diet gene interaction comes in, is that there's all sorts of clinical studies showing that people with ApoE4 – benefit from fish, eating fish, where they can um, basically have improved pathology in their brain, have improved symptoms of dementia. Um, But when they take fish oil, if you take fish oil and give it to to people with dementia, only the people without ApoE4 benefit. For some reason, the ApoE4 people aren't benefiting. And if you look into the literature, animals that were um, given human ApoE4 versus human ApoE3, the DHA doesn't get transported across the blood-brain barrier uh, very well with uh, ApoE4. So it's like, what's going on? There's some sort of transport defect. And DHA in the brain is really important. It's been shown to play an important role in human studies, but a lot of animal studies and human studies it's been shown to, to um, increase amyloid clearance. Uh, it's in humans, it's been shown to decrease t- uh, tau tangles. And also, it's really important for um, glucose uptake into the brain because it regulates the transporters, glucose transporters.
0: What was the second thing? Tau
1: what? Tau tangles. So tau tangles um, form inside of neurons and they disrupt um, a process that's uh, called microtubule transport, which is where basically it's, it's, the, it's the neuron system for transporting fatty acids, um, all sorts of goodies, energy to the, uh, to the synapse where synaptic transition is happening. Tau tangles basically disrupt that whole thing. Amyloid plaques form outside of neurons in the extracellular space, and they uh, can disrupt synapse formation. They're thought to form um, as a protective mechanism against viral, or fungal, or bacterial infection. So it's kind of like, um, you know, the, that's the reason why they're forming, but it's just a matter of clearing them out and also how your, how your brain's able to, like, deal with the amyloid plaque burden, and ApoE4 is not able to deal with it very well. Uh, so the DHA transport thing is uh, basically what I, what I published is, is, um, has to do with the interaction between different forms of DHA and APOE. Um, there's two different ways that DHA is transported across the brain. One is when it's like in a free fatty acid form. It's bound to albumin, and it requires an intact blood-brain barrier, uh, specifically the outer membrane of the blood-brain barrier needs to be intact. And... Um, And because it goes through passive diffusion. Well, if there's a disruption in the blood-brain barrier, then the DHA isn't going to be transporting very well in that form. Um, And it's been shown that APOE4 actually disrupts that very thing, the outer membrane, um, the tight junctions that bind the outer membrane of the endothelial cells that line the blood-brain barrier. And so um, it's, it's quite possible that that is why... DHA is not getting into the brains very well in ApoE4 carriers. There's another way to get it in, and this is through a transporter that that uses something called lysophosphatidylcholine DHA, which is a phospholipid form of DHA. It forms from phosphatidylcholine DHA. The transporter is called MFSD2A, and it basically takes the DHA and flips it down uh, across the outer membrane into the inner membrane of the blood-brain barrier, so it bypasses that outer membrane, and then it gets transported in. So... Um, if you look at animal studies, that you delete that transporter, uh, like sixty percent of the DHA does, is you know not getting into the brain. If you give give animals DHA, humans with, um, with a with variation in that gene that makes it less less active have get neurodegenerative form of neurological disorders and neurodegenerative dis- uh, disorders. So it's obviously very important, um, you know, to 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 get DHA into the brain through that through that mechanism. Well, it turns out if you consume DHA in phospholipid form, you actually form more of lysophosphatidylcholine DHA. Um, and that's because basically where the DHAs are on a, on a phospholipid, they're in multiple carbons and, and one of them can escape a lipase in the pancreas. And so basically you, you can form more of it. Okay, But um, so ph- phospholipid form DHAs in fish, but it's really abundant in fish row, like super abundant, like. 30 to 70 percent of DHA that's found in fish roe, which are fish eggs, um, a variety of different kinds um, are in phospholipid form.
0: And you, you consume that stuff a lot. I do. Or? That's
1: the reason why. And How I finally get to talk in? about it. Um, I order mine. So you can, like, I get salmon roe. I like the salmon because it also has astaxanthin in it.
0: Which And is, do you order it, like, is it bottled or canned or something? I like order that? It's frozen. It's frozen.
1: Yeah, it's frozen. I order it. Um, but you can go into, like, a Japanese store. You can get flying fish roe, you know, which are much, some people prefer those because they're smaller and the texture, they don't like. The salmon roe, like the ikura, if you go to, like, a sushi restaurant and you mm-hmm. get, like, the, like, fish eggs that come in like you know
0: the, the seaweed yeah, they're, a, a big they're bigger
1: they're bigger and they kind of used know, to
0: use those for bait
1: yeah some people don't like them because it's like they squish yeah. it and it's like liquid coming
0: they're great for catching rainbow trout rainbow trout yeah rainbow trout eats salmon eggs
1: so i'm so i'm basically you know that's that's one way to get more phospholipid form but also DHA consumed in like triglyceride form, which is what a lot of fish oil is, Mm -hmm. also forms. It also forms DHA lysophosphatidylcholine, but you just need more of it. So it's also possible that some of these clinical trials showing that you know fish oil failed was because they were using like the dose they were using was two grams. So maybe you need six grams. Maybe you need four.
0: Is there any negative benefit or negative consequence of consuming too much fish oil?
1: Well, I think you know certainly depends on the type of fish oil. That you're consuming. I mean, if you're consuming oxidized fish oil, then it's certainly not very
0: good. But and why would it be oxidized if it's if it lasts if it's too old or it's if it's too old too
1: and depending on how they ice how what the isolation process was. But yeah, too old for sure. Things that are sitting around. So um, the
0: purification process is very important. The purification,
1: the yes, yes, very important. And like I said, there's that fish oil standards um, program you can look up, and there's a variety of different uh, fish oil supplement brands that are on there. Um, the other thing is like there was just recently a randomized, very, very large randomized control trial published on four grams of one of the omega-3 fatty acids found in, in um, fish and other marine organisms, EPA. And they were given four grams a day for five years, 8,000 patients, randomized placebo-controlled, different countries. And um, it reduced, and these actually were patients that had high, trigly- um, high triglycerides and also were on statins. Um it lowered uh, cardiovascular disease by risk by like twenty eight or close to thirty percent or something like that. you know so that was a high dose, and that was five years long pretty pretty uh, long follow-up and it was a randomized placebo-controlled st- study. Um, I think it was called the vitals it vital it study. Um, but you know the other thing that I think people are worried about with really high dose fish oil is um, the the potential for blood thinning because it does inhibit thromboxanes and prostaglandins and leukotrienes and things that are important for like, you know, clotting. Um, you know, I've been taking a really high dose for like over a decade, you know, of fish oil. I've been taking not always six grams, but I've, I've been taking a high dose for quite a while.
0: And, and how often do you get your blood work done?
1: Well, recently I haven't been getting it done very often uh, because I'm the pregnancy and breastfeeding and stuff sort of changes things. I try to do it like it'd be, it ideally like doing it once a quarter, but like a couple times a year for sure. Um, pro- that's what
0: I, I try six months.
1: That's that's good. I think I think like you know sometimes you can get super obsessive by doing if you're doing it like once a quarter, you know. Do but y- for people that are not healthy, I think doing it once a quarter until they start to get healthier is a good Until they get idea. it
0: all dialed in right do exactly. you supplement with niacin at all
1: no i don't supplement with niacin um but i'm thinking about doing the nicotinamide riboside you know niacin can it, that's been shown to like lower ldl and like in higher the stuff that causes the flushing mm-hmm. right the stuff that causes the flushing but also i think that there was some problems with it like disrupting insulin Something with insulin secretion, I don't recall. It's been like so many years since I've read those studies. Mm. But um, the nicotinamide riboside forms NAD. So the niacin is a precursor for, for NAD, which is um, also increased during fasting.
0: We were going to get NAD uh, IV injections. We still got to do that, Jamie. That company contacted us. They, there's two ways of doing it. One, it takes eight hours. Or two, it takes like 10 to 15 minutes. And it's like excruciating. Yeah. You, like the pain, it's excruciating pain. Yeah, they push it. Yeah, they push it through, and it's just your your guts feel like they're on fire for like 10 minutes. I want to try that just to see how the, bad it the, is. The fast one, the 15 minutes. Yeah, because minute, I want to see. Eight hours say, is a long time. Yeah, I don't have eight hours. Yeah, It's not happening. I'm not sitting around for eight hours. But apparently there's some significant benefits to uh, IV versions of it and doing it. Uh, ben Greenfeld was on the podcast talking about it pretty much in, pretty really? uh, in depth. Yeah, he's a big believer of it.
1: Yeah, I couldn't find. I, I actually tried finding some published studies on the IV version. I really couldn't find any. I take that time. Elysium
0: stuff too. I'm pretty sure that's I was what I'm talking about Yeah, Elysium. you you uh, recommended it yeah. to me. Yeah, I subscribe to that. I get that stuff every day. Now.
1: So so that's um. And there have been published studies, clinical studies in humans yeah. on that.
0: I take that stuff every day. I like it. Yeah. Um. But I I guess I don't really know. I Take a lot of things. I don't really know. But um, the NAD by intravenous method. It's supposed to be a much more potent form of it. And uh, the people that I know that have tried it, like the, the guys at on it, they get um, uh, someone will come down to their the on it labs, like uh, a couple times a month, and a, a bunch of the employees will sign up and get zapped.
1: So I wonder why some of these guys don't start like gathering data and start publishing because it'd be nice to
0: yeah, to, it would be
1: to see some data on that.
0: Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah,
1: it. You know, a lot of times it, it's hard to get funding for some of these things, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it'd be interesting to see if it has some of the similar benefits that uh, taking something like nicotinamide riboside has. Yeah. Where if you take, like, a high enough dose, you can you can raise your, your NAD levels, like, dramatically.
0: How many of those Elysium tablets are you taking on a daily basis?
1: I stopped taking them just right
0: now while I'm, breastfeeding, like, breastfeeding. Yeah. I'm just
1: always on the cautious side. Sure. Um, I was taking, I think I was taking 250 milligrams, I think.
0: Each pill is? I don't know. Mm, okay.
1: I don't, I don't remember. You know
0: uh before I forget, I did want to ask you about it but when we uh, dialing uh, circling back to this whole carnivore thing, one of the suggestions was that it isn't is is it possible that people that some small percentage of the population would actually be allergic to a lot of plants I
1: mean, there are people that can be allergic to certain components i mean there's there's the whole nightshade you know family where I think some people can like they have allergic. Uh, reactions to, and I think that people with
0: nightshades being tomatoes, tomatoes, plants, like bell Is peppers, eggplant, eggplant yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and then also people with like gut issues.
0: Have you ever heard of anyone being allergic? Oh, so gut issues would predispose yeah. you to being well
1: because you know, there are other things in the plants that can, you know, so things people like to talk about, like lectins, for example, mm-hmm. and. You know, lectins, they're, they, are, they are in a lot of plants, but they're much more concentrated in something like a legume, like a bean, mm-hmm. and, and they're inactivated with heat. Um, but typically, most people don't have reactions to, to, to lectins, and possibly if they already have some sort of gut barrier problem, that could sort of elicit a reaction. But um, a lot of the data out there is like in vitro, where lectins are used to stimulate the immune system in vitro. In fact, I've used lectins before to do an experiment. Um, but, you know, um, so I think that, yeah, there's there's certainly food allergies are, are
0: definitely a possibility and they do exist. So is it possible that someone would be allergic to both cruciferous vegetables and, you know, a bunch of other uh, like celery or cucumbers or things along those lines?
1: I don't know, if, uh, you know, if they're allergic to them, m- maybe. I think that people can have, um, you know, with like, a variety of different issues like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in their intestines, um, you know, people that are that are sensitive to like FODMAPs, those things. So
0: what is a FODMAP?
1: I, I don't have fructose, oligosaccharide, like I can't remember what it is. But the, it, it basically people people can be sensitive to them. They're usually mm-hmm. people with gut issues.
0: Like right, so, so it I all boils down to gut issues. It boils
1: down to gut issues, and I and that there certainly is. Um, some cruciferous vegetables like cabbage or something can affect people. They can feel bloated and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that sometimes resolving those gut issues will resolve that problem. Um, I don't. I don't tend to think everyone's like someone's going to be allergic to every plant. I don't know though. I mean, you
0: know, anything's possible, right? Right. But <laughs> so, there's no literature. There's no. There's no. Uh, studies. I haven't come
1: across any. <clears throat> but I haven't done an in depth. Um, search for that specific thing.
0: So is it fair to say that when people are describing this and they're saying that it might be possible that there are a small percentage of the population, or there is a small percentage of the population that's allergic to plants, that really what you're dealing with is a small percentage of population that has a significantly impaired gut biome that is finding benefit to eliminating these plants, this strict elimination diet, being on this carnivore diet, which also has calorie restrictive aspects to it, and even fasting restricted aspects to it, that this is why they're experiencing this positive benefit. And that perhaps one of the ways they could fix their gut biome would be some sort of prolonged fast or something along those lines to try to fix the problem at the root source instead of... Maybe what the carnivore diet would be is like some sort of yeah. a, um, a dietary Band-Aid.
1: Right. And I think that the, the study I was talking about, the 15-day um, intermittent fast where, where people with autoimmune disease were fasted for 24 hours every other day, mm-hmm. um, they had uh, changes in their microbiome that were in line, very interesting changes. It, they actually um, grew bacteria that are uh, you know, very uh, important for producing things like butyrate, um, which makes... You know, helps make T-regulatory cells. It's a signaling molecule that helps um, your immune system produce more T-regulatory um, uh, immune cells. And it this also... is something
0: that comes from a state of ketosis as well?
1: Um, well, this, yeah, exactly. They were fasting, yeah. And the, the thing that was so interesting, and it's a question I had had for so long, was like, what happens to the microbiome when you don't eat? Like, is it, do you start, you know, are you getting like a selection for mucin-degrading bacteria, which are degrading a certain glycoprotein that lines the gut? And, you know... And the thing that was so interesting about this study was that they did this like metagenomic analysis and they found from fecal samples that um, p- that the gene like in the within the existing microbiome, it was increasing the production of like ketone bodies themselves. And that was fueling because your, your gut cell, like your gut cells and also a lot of the beneficial bacteria like things like butyrate, lactate, uh, propionate, acetate. You know, these are some of the short chain fatty acids. Butyrate's like the big one in the gut for the gut, like gut cells like like 80 or 90 percent are like using butyrate Mm. but fasting was like increasing all these ketone bodies so it's kind of really interesting because for one it 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 helped and it and it basically um, uh, increased the diversity of this beneficial bacteria it was very interesting I wouldn't have guessed that
0: have there been fasting have there been any studies on uh, consumption of exogenous ketones to benefit the gut bio not that I'm aware of I mean do you think that that would mirror it in any way
1: that's a very interesting question because most of the exogenous would be like a beta-hydroxybutyrate ester. I don't the, – the question would be how similar is beta-hydroxybutyrate to butyrate, right? Because butyrate's is mm. what, what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting question. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I mean that would be – or even what, what's happening during, um, during like a ketogenic diet as well right? You're making, you have a lot of circulating beta hydroxybutyrate. Is that good? Does that get to the gut? And is you know, so that's, that's another interesting question.
0: Yeah. Because it is a interesting way to hack your system is that these exogenous ketones like, uh, or that's one that I use for a few other companies that make these, they do put your body in a state of ketosis.
1: Yeah, no, I've definitely tried. I've tried one, um, from, from HVMN, the beta hydroxybutyrate ester. And, um, I, I, it definitely like gives me energy. Um, but the other thing I really liked was the mental effects. The thing, the the, the thing about it. So, cup there's a sort. Of, it's sort of a, a double edged sword because I feel less anxious when I take it. And this was this is getting me up into like you know four point five um, millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate in like an hour. Mm-hmm. I um I feel uh, less anxious and more more in the present. Like I'm more present and not like you know a million things ahead Whereas, mm. like sometimes my brain goes right so i felt like and 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 this is something that like like dan observed with me you know and I you felt
0: do, this more than once oh yeah so this is a oh, repeatable yeah. thing i started
1: using it i started using it i didn't use it today but um the reason why i didn't use it today so i i've started using it like for podcast or big oh. talks or anything like and the reason i didn't use it Today is because the flip side is <clears throat> it dramatically because I'm not in ketosis, I'm not on a you know ketogenic diet. It lowers my blood sugar levels like really dramatically, and this has been published. You know, there's like mechanisms that are trying to be explored to understanding why that is, um, and possibly as a therapeutic treatment for type two diabetes mm-hmm. and things like that. But so if once the once the ketones wear off, which they do after a couple of hours, I crash. Because my blood glucose is low, and I don't have the ketones there to compensate, right, whereas if I was already in ketosis, then you know it wouldn't matter because i'd already I'd be in ketosis right, right, you know what i'm saying right, I see yeah so so um, yeah, it's really interesting the the effects on the brain i don't you know it's something that I noticed, and I certainly um. Like repeatedly noticed,
0: you know. What would be the mechanism that would allow you to be more present? That's that seems so strange that that would and have...
1: less anxiety. Yeah, I mean,
0: what, what would what would cause that?
1: I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, possibly the glucose is being spared in my brain for other things. That's you know because now the ketone, the beta hydroxybutyrate is being used as a source of energy, and glucose mm-hmm. is being used. I mean, glucose sparing does occur, um, a lot of times in the in the context of making more. Uh, glutathione, because that's, glucose is, can be used for energy or can be used to make glutathione. And th- the pathway that it, it does that is through a pathway called the pentose phosphate shunt. Um, and that pathway takes glucose and makes something called NADPH, which is then used, which is necessary to make glutathione. So I don't know, maybe there's some kind of, some because you know what else does it for me? Sulforaphane. Sulforaphane gives me major anti-anxiety effects and, like, cognitive... Like, I feel... So,
0: broccoli sprouts. Consuming broccoli sprouts. does
1: affect glutathione in the brain. (coughs) Oh, I never thought about that. Mm. Anyways, it's all hypothetical. What about
0: um, consuming those exogenous ketones with glutathione? Have you ever tried that?
1: I didn't know those existed.
0: I mean, trying... Oh, you mean with the broccoli sprouts. With the broccoli sprouts, you mean. Yeah, well, you're saying glutathione. Increases glutathione in the brain, but what about a glutathione supplement?
1: Well, glutathione supplements... So, glutathione... um, First of all, it gets destroyed in the gut. But like, even if you were to get it into your your bloodstream, there's no transporter for glutathione to get into cells. Mm. So you want to make – I mean you can get the precursors to make it and you can increase – like the way broccoli sprouts does it is increases enzymes that make it. So you're uh, making more and so that's how you
0: do it. So when you – so one of the things that glutathione does is it, it helps your body process alcohol, Correct.
1: Um, I don't, I mean, it's a very powerful antioxidant. Wasn't that
0: what Mark Gordon talked about? Liposomal glutathione? Yes. Yeah. Liposomal glutathione helps your body with the, the processing of alcohol. Hmm.
1: It's a very, very strong, um, antioxidant. Antioxidant. And so, I
0: mean, but it gets destroyed in your gut. So, well if you're
1: taking it yeah right, yeah orally. and also glutathione doesn't it? doesn't get into your cells. Yeah, there's a video
0: about it. Yeah. There's
1: a video about it well, from from this podcast.
0: Oh, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> um yeah, that that was something about the processing of alcohol. Um now so if you, how would so the best way to get it would be through sulforaphane. So from broccoli sprouts, cruciferous vegetables, and then your body would produce more.
1: Well, so from this, the the human studies that I've referenced, um, one was three hundred grams of Brussels sprouts a day increased glutathione plasma by 1.4-fold. The other study, um, more recently, that showed an increase in plasma as well as in the brain. Um, that was a sulfur that was a broccoli sprout extract that was given. I don't, I think the, I have the dose on my Instagram. I think I don't remember off the top of my head the dose, but, um, so that's one of the ways I know of, uh, one of the most powerful ways I know of to increase glutathione, um, and you know, basically in, in humans. So I don't know how much 300 grams of Brussels sprouts is.
0: So what would be a good idea? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, would be a large dose of like a large plate of, Brussels sprouts, with uh, or broccoli sprouts with some sort of uh, a ketone supplement,
1: or if you're doing, if you're in ketosis, yes. whether that's fasting, time restricted eating, you know, so that's something that I do. So I am definitely trying to get my ketosis in, or you're on a ketogenic diet and you're getting. So the question is, um, I'm not sure the glucose sparing stuff that's been shown in animals. So I don't know how much of that. Is, you know, translatable to humans? Mm-hmm. What effect? I mean, you always have to, to have evidence to say something definitively. But um, animal studies do show that, that there is a uh, glucose sparing effect when you have ketone bodies. Mm. Um, so, you know. Just fascinating that, that it would, fascinating that it would make you more present. You know, there, what's fascinating is that sulforaphane treats autistic symptoms. Right? I mean,
0: right. so. Yeah.
1: Right? right? So what's going on there? It's definitely. And it, uh, there's also been an open-label study. So there's been two trials with two or maybe three, and Dr. Jed Fahey has been a part of these as well as his colleagues, um, a randomized placebo-controlled and open-label, which is always less uh, – open-label means there wasn't a placebo-control. But they did measure uh, metabolites of sulfur, uh, sulforaphane and also oxidative stress in, in um, plasma, which always helps. Um, and then there's been a trial on schizophrenic patients. Sulfurfin helps with that as well. That was open-label. Right now there's an ongoing placebo-controlled trial that's now taking place. So there's very interesting effects on the brain. Um, you know, it seems as though there is some oxidative stress component. You know, I have APOE4. Who knows how much, you know, there oxidative stress may be happening more in my brain because of APOE4. Mm. Um, there's certainly... Increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, increase you know, the traumatic brain injury, poor outcome. All, there's all this evidence that sort of shows that. So
0: don't start kickboxing.
1: Definitely not kickboxing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so do you think – that? I mean it seems like like a perfect pre-podcast meal would be these uh, broccoli sprouts. Yeah. And um, maybe an exogenous ketone drink as well, like the two of them together.
1: Yeah. So, so the only thing is, like I mentioned, for me, I crash after a couple of hours right. where I'm like – like it's like really like like crashing. But could, like, do you
0: think you could mitigate that with maybe some sort of a glucose? Because one of the things that maybe so yeah, they say to take when you're taking those ketone salts or ketone esters, the really potent ones, is to take them with glucose.
1: Right, and I, they actually say yeah. on they say in the, in the instructions to take it with a high carbohydrate meal. Mm-hmm. And so I usually will take. I will usually eat a bowl of oatmeal with like some some fruit. Right, and um, and I'll take it, but. But still, it really – like it lowers my blood, lo- my blood glucose levels dramatically within an hour. It's like That's interesting. Like, I don't seriously. feel that
0: I, when I've taken uh, those supplements. I don't, I don't feel the crash.
1: Try, try the one I'm talking, the HVMN. Mm-hmm. It's a really
0: powerful – H-P-N-M? H-V-M-N. H-V-N-M?
1: Yeah. I should have brought you some. I have some in the hotel. <laughs> Okay. So I was thinking about trying taking it, but I was like, I don't. Does it don't... taste like ass? Yeah, it tastes really bad. I mean, it just <laughs> like definitely
0: tastes like. You know? <laughs> it's so bad. Some of them are so disgusting.
1: <laughs> I I did an interview with the the president of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, and I I like downed it right before he walked in, and I was like, and he had just published a study <laughs> on on you know ketosis and animals and helping with lifespan and brain you know aging and stuff, but so I had to tell him I'm like. Like here, <laughs> I just took this and I actually gave him some as well, but, um, because it was kind of embarrassing. Cause I, your face. Like, oh, oh yeah. I was like grimacing big time. It was like <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a funny way to first meet somebody. And I, had,
1: I know I had just like eaten some pineapple cause they had like mm. some fruit available and cause they didn't have any carbohydrates. I was right. like, dang, what am I going to, so anyways, now you know all my secrets.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good one. That's fascinating. I've never thought about that, but that seems like a pre podcast meal or a pre comedy show meal that might be like a really good idea to try. Yeah, just a big plate of broccoli sprouts.
1: Yeah, the broccoli sprouts are the really good source. Um, the supplements are not so. It's really sulforaphane is not very stable, mm. so um,
0: you can. Do you get, take it in a shake? Do you grind it up?
1: I, so I haven't been doing that. Yes, I grind it up, but you can just put them on a salad, or you can mm-hmm. just eat them. You don't have to. Do it. it it doesn't taste good. Right. So like that's it, why
0: you made it in a shake.
1: Um. So so if you're gonna put it in a shake with other other things, you want to blend it up first because um. The enzyme, myrosinase, that has to come in contact with the precursor of sulforaphane, glucoraphanin, has to be in contact with it. So it's diluted out if you have, like, a big – all this other Uh. stuff. So blend it up first and then add your other stuff. Mm, Um, Okay. But um, I've been taking a supplement I I got from from France called Prostaphane, which is – there's published studies on it, and it tastes like broccoli sprouts. Um, And uh, I've been taking that right now just because of the potential risk for contamination. I'm just – Breastfeeding, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just like I'm always going E-coli, there. E. coli things on exactly. those exactly, so yeah. I'm just kind of because that bacteria has been shown to be transferred from breast milk. And yes, there was like that that news story where the woman ate the placenta.
0: Yeah, and like it was like I was reading this guy's Instagram. He's a vegan, and he was going on and on about people getting E. coli from meat. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man! You get it from fucking spinach. Yeah, you know, you can get it from broccoli. You get it from farm raised vegetables. Like, stop. Right. But but it comes, he's right in in a way, because it comes from the runoff from uh, animal feces, right? I mean right. that's how it gets into... Isn't that the case? I don't know. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it gets into the food. Find out if that's true. Um, e. coli in vegetables comes from animal agriculture. Google that. I think that's true.
1: I've certainly had some... Uh, bad sprouts before Store bought I was sick Really? You got yeah. sick? Yeah I got sick <clears throat> uh, You know And also um, From ones we made at home You know you It just If you have to be really careful If you have mm-hmm. too much water around If it's too much heat And condensation And all that and stuff And
0: bacteria grows Because you're eating it raw Yeah exactly So when you clean I mean How difficult is it to clean? Did you find anything? Manure. <clears throat> manure in the For manure Yeah, Yeah So it is Right, Ruminants in general, cattle in particular, both beef and dairy. Yep. Right. So a lot of these, especially like a real organic farm, a lot of times they're they're um, they vary. They have animals, plants, all sorts of other stuff together, and the runoff from the cows gets onto your broccoli and all that jazz. Yeah, it's nasty. And how do you clean that? I mean, if I, you know, told you that E. Coli was on your vegetables. You still want to eat them if you clean them? You'd be I like, wouldn't. I'm not no. eating that shit. So, how uh, do you clean your vegetables?
1: I rinse them, yeah. Mm-hmm. But
0: I mean. Right. But <sighs> how good? I usually you?
1: don't get. I don't know. Right. Yeah, but right. if you
0: knew, like, that's the thing. Like, when people say, oh, you should clean your vegetables, I will go, okay. But if there was E. coli on those vegetables and you cleaned them, would you think that would be enough? Probably wouldn't. Washing your greens won't protect against E. coli. Consum- <laughs> there you go. The heat kills E. coli and other types of bacteria can make you sick. Even greens that are typically consumed raw, such as romaine lettuce, can be cooked. Okay, so E. coli is destroyed at 160 degrees Fahrenheit, which is like seems like everything. Trichinosis, a lot of things killed at 1 160. So, um, so but the broccoli sprouts you don't you don't consume cooked.
1: No, because the enzyme um, that converts the precursor into active
0: sulforaphane is heat sensitive. Is it um, – does it diminish it significantly or kill it altogether?
1: Uh, significantly. I mean, you still – there's still some. Plus the, the precursor that you're um, – that, you know, is important for forming sulforaphane, you actually have bacteria in your gut. And this is um, something that Dr. Judd Fahey talked about um, when I when I interviewed him. He was talking about there's certain strains of bacteria in the gut that convert because they have the enzyme myrosinase and they convert it into sulfur in the gut. Mm. So you can actually get a a certain amount. He also mentioned that you can take um, mustard seed powder and sprinkle it on top of your cooked Brussels sprouts, your sauteed kale, which is this is what I do Mm -hmm. because I eat sauteed kale. And so I also have raw, I eat raw kale, but um, mustard powder has the active enzyme so you can consume that uh, with it. Oh, okay. Um, That's the other thing. Like I mentioned, the the there are the supplements I'm taking. There is one out there also that is has a lot of the precursor uh, and some of the enzyme, and so you can get a modest amount of. And this is what was used in the, in the most recent autism study. Um, it's called Avmacol. but the one A V A M wait Av yeah A V M A V A
0: M yes Av no A V <laughs> Av-M-A-C-O-L Sorry There he's got it ah. A-V-M-A-C-O-L A-V
1: That one's That one's M- probably One of the best ones In the U.S. But prostafane. Um, Prostafane's
0: naturally Naturally produce
1: hmm. And Dr. Jed Fetty Has, has tested this he's, he's tested These different sul- uh, Supplements And looked at uh, Sulfuraphane Metabolites And urine To look at like Bioavailability and So what
0: is the one That you like?
1: Prostop like I like Apple call. I I I've taken both, but it's hard to get Prostafane in the US. Why is it hard? Because it's made in it's in France. It's a France. Can you get it on not, Amazon? No. What?
0: <laughs> That's all I, I, Amazon's got me hooked. No. They got me but, hooked. But you sinker. can get it. It's just You got to find it somewhere. Uh they have a website
1: maybe? Yeah. Okay. So Okay. That's what I've been taking recently. How much do you the, take? Um, I'm taking three pills a day. I think each pill has 10 milligrams. With food? Yes. Definitely with yes. food. Yes.
0: <laughs> Why is that? For absorption or?
1: Um, yeah. It seems like it can be a little like, it you know, it, it seems it just sometimes if you're on an empty stomach.
0: Feels it just, gross. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um,
1: I've had a lot of people email me, you know, since the first time you and I talked about sulforaphane.com. Some of them have taken Avmicol, some have gotten a hold of Prostiphane, some have been doing broccoli sprouts. I mean, I've had people talking about like tumor shrinking and stuff. Like Whoa. one guy, yeah, I mean, it's like all anecdotal, but um, I've, I've had multiple, multiple people talking about the prostate st- uh, stimulating antigen going down. Sorry, prostate, um, is it stimulating? PSA.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My brain's sort of dwindling out, but um, that going brain. down, I know. Um, it's
0: a real thing it really
1: is it's a real thing i mean i've kind of i feel like i've done really good just from like exercise and Mm -hmm. getting all the fish oil and stuff but uh it's definitely there's constantly it's just all you're running a marathon a day totally
0: (laughs) (laughs) i've seen it it's it's uh the i mean people that don't we were talking about this before the podcast uh with Dan, mm-hmm. people that don't think that it's difficult to be uh, just a mom or a stay at home mom, you're crazy.
1: I was so judgmental and I really <laughs> feel bad. I really do because it's the <laughs> hardest thing like like that i've I've ever done Bill is, Burr
0: has a great job if you want to do that. it good oh really he goes, oh it's the hardest thing. he goes Any job you can do with your pajamas on is not the hardest <laughs> thing. <laughs>
1: I really like Bill Burr. (laughs) He's hilarious. hilarious. Yeah, he's hilarious. He's a great guy. But I mean, if you want to do a good job, and you're thinking about like the enriched environment and how important, I got to do read. I got to read to them. I got to, you know, all this. It's just, Mm -hmm. and then all the nutrition and not getting the plastic. And I mean, it's just a lot of work. Like, I don't. No screen. You don't want to have like you don't want to sit them in front of the television and have them watching cartoons. Right. You know. So, which definitely would be easy. Right. so and maybe the more kids you have, you're kind of like something going to give. But but uh, it's definitely a very, very hard. It's a hard job, but very rewarding. So rewarding. Like, I just can't even believe I ever had a life before my son. You know, with, mm. like I'm just my life is like I get so much joy from him now. And I'm just like, how did I get all this joy before? It's like,
0: well, it's crazy it's because happy. I remember before you had him, you were like concerned, like, boy, I wonder where my time's going to go. If I'm still going to be able to do research, it's like, ooh, it's whoa, We'll see. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's hard. And I, thankfully, I have my mother who helps out a lot, and that gives me some time. But I'm like essentially doing both. You know.
0: Do you feel the switches going off in your brain, or your brain switches over? Because you're, you, you essentially there's some a biological mechanism that's happening that must be fascinating to study. On yourself as you're watching it happen, because you're you know the oxytocin gets jacked through the roof. You have this little thing that you love literally more than anything you've ever experienced in your entire existence. You can't believe how much you love them. It's hard to imagine. Like I, it's hard for me as a father to imagine what it would be like to be a mother, because I think there's a v- big difference. Because I think there's, and this is one of the reasons why me and my wife had a deal. I didn't name any of the kids. I just had veto power. It's like you can't call the kid, like, fucking turnip or some stupid <laughs> shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kale. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just nothing nutty. But you, it's in your body. I mean, you're cooking it up. You manufactured up it. I know. Inside of you. The, the difference in the job a man does and a woman does in, in terms of, like, the actual making of the baby could not be further apart from each other. The guy just does something that feels great. And it's done. And then the woman goes through this insane hormonal process. Her body morphs. She gains 50, 60-plus pounds. Her body stretches out. She's got a baby inside of her. It's kicking her. She's uncomfortable. She can't move. She's swelling. Then she has to go through excruciating pain. There was a video on Dig from yesterday. See if you can find it. Where they have a labor um, recreating like pain device, no way that, that they put men under, and they ha- they have these fucking macho men that they have this this machine that they they do something. They have these uh, sense these. We'll put it up. We'll figure it out how how the fuck they did it, but it somehow or another reenacts the pain of labor and lets a man experience what it's like to get your vagina blown apart. That's crazy. No, it is. You just totally explain. I mean. The whole pregnancy
1: and then, like, the delivery. I mean, yeah. it's just, like...
0: And then it's, like, a part of you is walking around. Right. Whereas and for the man, it's, like, oh, yeah, that's my kid. Wow. And you get all this oxytocin rush, but I don't even think it's a fraction of what the woman's. Breastfeeding,
1: you know, that whole, like, nursing, that's, like, huge oxytocin. Mm. Place. Huge, huge. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, there's, like, the no sleep for, like, months. And mm-hmm. for me, like, I... Um, m- my son, like he's seen a bottle like i don't know six or seven times like i just i've always been
0: there on the nipple yeah, yeah and do you and, pump um so because i was always there I, i've only had a pump a few times the thing about pumping that seems to be really good though is that the kids can get more of it it's like it's uh, depending on how never well had an issue never like an issue, you know? I,
1: I was actually an overproducer, and i had oh. an issue of too much Whoa. where yeah it's like he's like slow down mom Yeah, so (laughs) I was
0: looking for that and I stumbled across Mm -hmm. this. Pouvade syndrome. Never heard of that? A sympathetic pregnancy is a proposed condition in which a partner experiences some symptoms and be that's just a bitch ass man. (laughs) These include minor weight gain, altered hormone levels, morning nausea, and disturbed sleep patterns. Like I said, that's just a bitch ass man.
1: The disturbed sleep patterns come after the baby's born, let me tell you.
0: That's silly, Meg, but I've, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, some so guys sure. say that, oh, I gained, I gained weight, too, when I was pregnant. That's because you're lazy. <laughs> that's because you're lazy and you ate more food, you fucking slob. That has nothing to do with a baby being in your body. Shut right. your mouth. <laughs> that's, that's embarrassing. Stop you know? eating so much. I'm pregnant, too. No, you're not. I hate when men say we're pregnant. Yeah, we're pregnant. No, we're not. No, we're not pregnant, Mike. <laughs> you're not pregnant, Mike. She's pregnant. You got her pregnant, you fuck. What does it say here? Labor pain simulator. Here, here it is. Look at these guys. I Give me some volume. What? <laughs> oh, oh, that's different. <laughs> Look <at me>. right. <laughs> <laughs> I to Talk to me As right, you're right now. So you're almost getting to like the active stage of labor where it's okay. really getting good. This is All just right. the beginning. <laughs> it, it ramps up. <laughs>
1: Guys. I mean it really does feel You know that what's next? What's
0: next is these gals put a strap on and on they peg these dudes <laughs> so That's next They just have sensors on their stomach it looks like, right? Yeah, it's like, uh, you know one of them, like you know those yeah, electromuscular stimulation egg. devices and they just jack them through the roof they just der- They could have put one in on their yeah. groin, right? Yeah, well they put them in their abdomen They're just getting torn apart but it's not even as sensitive as your vagina, so it's ridiculous. Plus, you're probably
1: not making, like, Look the endorphins these guys. and <laughs> oxytocin. This and guy's getting up.
0: Yeah, it's nothing. And he's getting up on his hands and knees, like, come on, stop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're just basically torturing these men to m- make them feel bad for not being a woman. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely um, a painful process. Yes. That whole delivery thing is definitely yeah. painful, but. It is pretty crazy. It's it's It's,
0: definitely crazy. It's really crazy that people make people in their bodies. You know, know, like I was talking to my daughter this morning. She was getting ready for school and uh, we're sitting at the, the breakfast table and I'm just looking at her and while she's talking, all I'm thinking of is you didn't used to exist. And now here you are talking to me about school, talking to me about this and that and all the different things you're doing. And it is so odd. That you are a combination of my DNA and my wife's DNA. And here you are, just sitting here eating breakfast. Just talking. Ten years old now. Blah 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 blah. Blah 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 Does uh, she tell oh. jokes yet? Uh she's not that well, she'll she'll tell jokes, but my eight year old's fucking hilarious. <laughs> the eight year old has figured out how to be funny. She farts on cue, like she'll she'll tell you she's gotta tell you something. Daddy, I have to tell you something. Come here, I have to tell you something. And she's like, she'll fall to the ground. She thinks it's so funny. She thinks she's she's really funny. She says funny shit. She's a very funny person. So
1: maybe she's got a little bit, some of the DNA from you is a little more active. Like, I don't know.
0: I think it's like she knows how to get a, a like a positive response out of people. You know, she knows how to be silly, mm-hmm. and she loves that. Like she's really silly with her friends, and she's just like she's the comedian amongst her friends for sure. That's cool. Yeah. Whereas my 10-year-old's not really that funny. But just, I shouldn't say she's not that funny. She doesn't try. It's not something she works at. It's also interesting know? how they're so different. And they're like <laughs> they couldn't raised be more in different. the same environment. Yeah. Couldn't same be more parents. different. Right out of the box. They come out with their own little personality. Like when they were tiny, tiny babies, you could see that they were different. You know? And I bet if you had 10 of them, like those crazy people, those duggers that have like 19 kids. Yeah. I bet they got 19 different humans. I bet they're all totally different. You know? I bet one of like Mike's like Shelly. they're probably like kind of close but (laughs) you know it's just it's uh, I mean i wish that it made sense i wish i could get a view of the human organism from high enough above that it all made sense and i and i could say oh all these little varying pieces are working in conjunction with each other, and this is why things get done, and this is why art gets created and buildings get built because you have to have a this and then you have to have a that, and they work together. And you know, I mean, that's like personalities, right? In terms of uh, relationships, like you don't want to have two bulls, right? You know, you have one who's like this and the other's like that, and together they make this one thing that's really nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, we've both seen, I'm sure, people that are just not, de- they might be really great people, but together they're terrible. Right. Like, just for whatever reason. Yeah. For sure. It's Fascinating. So it's Sober October. Yes. And
1: you're going to be doing some sauna. Did I tell you about some of the new sauna stuff in the brain?
0: No. New stuff. How new? Well, past year. May I ask you years? before we get going? Is there a difference? Because I keep, this keeps coming up. Is there any beneficial difference between infrared versus standard?
1: Well, a lot of the studies that uh, I refer to and that have been published have been using a standard, mm-hmm. right? And and the they definitely work differently. I mean, the standard standard hot sauna you're you're he- heating up the air and you're so you're you're heat you're getting hot, whereas the infrared is like it's like using it's like wavelengths that are like you know stimulating electrons that are sort of changing things and heating up you from a different sort of way so i but i do think that the key is the the heat stress itself um uh that personally i think that the the standard is better um why so because you get it's easier to get more hot more discomfort more heat stress Uh, it takes a lot longer in an infrared sauna to to really heat up at least in my experience they only go up Mm. to like 140 or something fahrenheit oh and a lot of benefits come from like 180 when you get up to, like, a 180 really? Fahrenheit.
0: Really? Oh, okay. Mine cranks. I have to... Mine, this one out here...
1: You're regular. You're hot. You're yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, that thing gets too fucking hot. Like yes. It, it gets to 200 all the time. That's... And cool. I have to open up the door. And, yeah, your ears start to hurt. And, and, and it's <laughs> not even... Cl- my feet hurt. Like, and it's not even close to pegged, like, in terms of, like, the, the the full temperature one. I just have a really hot one. Yeah. So I think that heat's really important. Like 180?
1: Yeah, exactly. 180 for 20 minutes um, is where it's sort of like a, a lot of studies published by, like, Dr. Jari, Jari Laukunen in Finland. He's shown a lot of benefits. Um, he's A lot of his studies have been observational, but he's also done some intervention trials as well. Um, the observational studies, we've talked about improvements in, cardi, you know, cardiovascular-related mortality. Also, like, literally, like, people, people do it four to seven times a week. They have, like, a 50% improvement in cardiovascular-related mortality. Um, three to four, three to four times a week, um, or was it two? To, yeah, three to four times a week. No, two to three times a week is like 24% improvement. So, like a dose-dependent manner, Alzheimer's disease as well is like reduced by like 60% if you do it four to seven times a week. All cause mortality. But he's also done some intervention studies showing that like there's improvements. Um, if even a single dose of of doing the sauna, um, improvements in um, the ability of your 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 blood vessels to contract and expand with pressure changes, which is important. So it's like vascular compliance, it's called. Improvements in blood pressure, um, decreases in, in uh, C-reactive protein, inflammatory biomarker. Other studies have been showing recently in humans increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, growing new healthy mitochondria, improvements in mitochondrial function, um and then also in improve, in, improvements in uh, anti-inflammatory cytokines being increased. And these are all intervention trials as well. Um, people that are doing it with uh, before doing a workout, which is interesting because I've always done it before after. Before doing a workout? Yeah. So, so, so doing it before a workout, it reduced um, delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, doing it before a workout, which is weird because...
0: 20 minutes before?
1: I don't remember the exact amount of time. I think that... Um, it was a little bit of a different protocol for that study. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I did tweet it at some point. Um, but, yeah, it's really interesting because I, doing it before seems like I'm so burnt out. Like after doing the sauna, it's like going and doing a workout after that. So mm-hmm. maybe would they have the same effects after, after you know, doing it afterwards? Possibly. Um, but what's super interesting is the effects on the
0: brain. Like have you noticed? Do, do you feel any? I feel great. Yeah. When I come out of there I feel just chilled out, relaxed. I feel I feel really good. I just feel good.
1: Right. I that's, feel
0: alleviated.
1: That's exactly the reason I even got interested in sauna was I that was, you know, I was doing it regularly and I started to notice that. Um, but I recently met up with a researcher, his name is Dr. Charles Raison. Um, I recorded a podcast with him, very interesting guy. But he uh devised this really cool like gadget where he could elevate people's core body temperature by like uh, a degree and a half but he had a sham control a placebo so to speak and um so so the placebo did increase people's core body temperature a little bit but not to that amount not to that degree so people thought they were getting the active treatment so they they weren't hot
0: they felt like they were they they thought they were getting hot and in fact
1: he said he, when they oh. when asked afterwards, like seventy percent of them thought they got the active treatment, oh God
0: so are hilarious. so
1: yeah, so it's actually a nice placebo controlled study, but um, what he found was that even a single treatment these were in people that had major depressive disorder, it improved depressive symptoms like even a week week after, and this was just a single you know exposure to the sauna. Well, wow. the sauna. It's not actually a sauna. It was like this, like, heating device. Mm-hmm. But um, he also measured their a, a cytokine called IL-6, which is something that's released from exercise. Muscle tissue releases it, it spills out into the, the bloodstream, and it's part of the inflammatory, you know, response, part of the inflammatory aspect of exercise. And in response, there's a whole anti-inflammatory um, effect. And so um, what he showed is that the actually people with the more IL-6 that happened, the better they had um, antidepressant, you know, effect. So it's super interesting because, uh, again, exercise does that. In fact, if you give people NSAIDs or like, you know, so non-steroidal uh, anti inflammatories um, and in, before exercise, it actually blunts the IL-6 production and it blunts some of the positive benefits like insulin sensitivity. So uh, the IL-6, although it's an inflammatory... Cytokine—it's kind of like this uh, sort of uh, pleiotropic one that, like, it's released. It's in muscle tissue. It's released, and it seems to like increase, um, have a, a big anti-inflammatory response that happens um, in response to that. So it was really interesting because the inflammation seems to be really important for depression, and that the sauna was like, you know, basically basically lowering markers of um, inflammation. So it's been shown to lower c protein, and then also increase IL-10. So it's a very interesting kind of um, connection between mood, um, heat stress, and then, of course, exercise does the same thing. Exercise does elevate your core body temperature and heats you up. And I asked uh, Dr. Razan. he thinks that things like the sauna, hot yoga, hot bath, steam room, all those things are – Pretty much can give you the same effect the, the point is the heat stress itself. i'm
0: pretty sure that yoga does the same effect with hot yoga because i have that same feeling when i get out of a hot yoga class yeah it is this is like really good alleviation feeling i just my mood feels elevated i feel happier and it feels different than a regular workout like where, regular workout does that but it seems more uh an alleviation of stress like I've expelled the excess energy in my body and I can relax. And there's certainly some sort of um, uh, some sort of a positive um, hormonal effect after it's over, uh, you know, some endorphin rush. But it's not the same as the yoga. The hot yoga, I think, is very addictive to people, and that's one of the reasons. Because after it's over, you feel amazing. Mm-hmm. You feel so good. There's studies showing that hot yoga does improve depressive
1: symptoms. There's not, there's mm. no, you know, sham control. I think there's uh, a researcher at Harvard uh, Public School of Health who's trying to develop, trying to. Uh, do a study without yeah, yoga. they're doing it right now. Are yeah. they with the, with the control, randomly? Yeah.
0: yeah. And the thing about yoga is that it's only 104 degrees in the room, but when you take into account the extreme condition of, like, the exercise, the extreme stress that you're putting on your body, a lot of it is, like, really difficult balancing and you're right. straining and all your muscles. You're fucking sweating, and you're not sweating, like, 104 degrees. You're sweating just like you're sweating inside the sauna. Right, like big-time sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, there's certain ones that are, like... When you do a balancing stick, when I'm standing in front of me like this, I'm watching it just pour off my arms. Yeah. Just watching sweat drip off me.
1: I sweat when I'm doing yoga like in non, when I'm holding those positions in a non-hot environment. Mm-hmm. You know, so I haven't, I've done a Bikram yoga a couple of times. I've done the hot yoga a couple of times. Um, I do really like it. And so I've had more time. Right. Do, do 90
0: more. minutes is a long time. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but but the endorphin you, you dump a bunch of endorphins with uh, the sauna as well, mm-hmm. like tons and tons. And then there's the whole like you're you're making dynorphin, which is the sort of opposite of endorphin. It's right. Responsible for that. I'm um, so hot. Oh, this feels like, right, 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 right. Yeah, like, yeah, and that changes some of the at least in animal studies, it's been shown just to change the sensitivity to endorphins. Um, from the receptor standpoint Mm. so it's kind of interesting uh that's kind of initially what i what i originally was was looking into when i was noticing all these benefits from the sauna Mm. but that's really cool that you're doing it because there's so many studies now showing that there's benefits on the cardiovascular health um also on neurodegenerative disease depression i mean the anti-inflammatory
0: effects as well it's so easy to have it i mean to have it right here and just to be able to to get into the sauna anytime I want. I'm basically doing it every day. That's nice. Yeah. Right
1: now I've been taking hot baths uh just because I haven't we're we're, we're trying to like get to the point where we have a, a sauna, but um I think we're going to get there soon, but uh, hot baths have been really doing it for me as well, where I, I'm like submerged with my shoulders. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't like if you start putting your arms and legs out of the water, like it doesn't count because like you feel cooler. Right. But if you like stay underneath, I mean, you start freaking out. Your heart starts rating, <laughs> Racing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's like the same effect that happens where you, yeah. you elevated heart rate and all and all those sort of similar Mechanisms kick into play like they do when you're in a sauna.
0: Do you do Epsom salt baths as well?
1: I have. I really <laughs> like them. Yeah, but...
0: I've been doing really hot baths with Epsom salts, especially like after like very fatiguing workouts. Uh-huh. It seems to have a, a good benefit. And and I know from the uh, tank, from the isolation tank, that it's a great way of absorbing magnesium through the Epsom salts. Oh, into your muscle. Yeah, hmm. through your through your skin. Hmm. You know, because Epsom salts is so high in magnesium. Yeah. Right. In the tank is a thousand pounds of Epsom salts in it.
1: It's crazy. Does it make your skin like yeah. nice when nice you do it?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just feels good too. But it's a, it, it feels really the tank. Have you done it yet?
1: I did it once um, in San Francisco, and you
0: can do it if, anytime you want if you want to come it here. It really,
1: yeah. If you guys are ever it in weather, town. I think it was really. Something wasn't right because I could feel like the temperature of the water was off off, and I I did enjoy what I what I mean It was nice. So at first I got in and they had some music playing music and then the music went away Oh to sort of relax you at first. Yeah, um, but uh, I Did I was like sort of in my head a bit, you know in that but I didn't but I kept feeling the water and I so I didn't feel like I was like sensory deprived Are
0: you ever here other than like when you come down to do the podcast?
1: Um, yeah, I do, I do. I'm coming back in November. Anytime you're here,
0: just let me know in advance and we'll open it up. I and mean, this tank here is the best, the float lab, or if you want to go to the place in Venice, but the one you could do here is so easy and it's got a shower in there and everything. Yeah,
1: that would be cool. And you can... I would like to try it again. Yeah. I mean, anytime. there are studies showing, you know, meditation and all that stuff is really important mm-hmm. for, I think it's an important, you know, one, one of the, you know, of many components in like healthy aging, healthy brain aging, lowering stress and stuff. Um, so I would definitely like to just...
0: I, I get out of that thing. I feel great. I'll, I'll come do you do down it here. frequently. still? Yeah, yeah, it's right here. You know, so I'll, I'll come down here early in the morning and do it sometimes. How long do you have to stay in there to really? I, I like at least an hour, but I really like to do two hours. Two hours for me is a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. When I come out after two hours, I'm just like so chilled out. Relaxed. Or... Yeah, and it's almost like during sober October, it's like cheating because you're basically getting high in there.
1: Are you doing it during sober October? Yeah.
0: Okay. I mean, it's not, you're not taking in a drug, but you're so chilled out, you know, and you do have a weird psychedelic state that you achieve when you're, it's like a very extreme form of meditation in a lot of ways because of the fact that you're not feeling your body at all and it's, you're only experiencing whatever's going on. It's like your brain detached from all the input of the body. Some of those, ex- some of those
1: studies that have been done on like long-term meditators, or even just people that haven't meditated,
0: mm-hmm. and then they're
1: put in like some like eight-week <laughs> trial of meditation, and how those like immediately all these changes in brain activity mm-hmm. start to happen, yeah, uh, like that are you know basically in line with good brain aging and improved you know all sorts of measures measures of improved uh, cognitive function and stuff. Mm. It's super interesting. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see like. You know what how that differs from meditation is one thing. I have a hard time with like I really it's
0: well meditation in conjunction with the tank I think is really the key. I, I think the tank allows you to achieve a state of physical your your physical body Not being uh, or not I, I, You don't ever completely eliminate the sensory input, but you diminish it so Significantly that that environment is not available anywhere else on earth Well, you're floating so you don't feel your body your water is the, the temperature of your skin the air is the same temperature as the water and you feel like you're just flying through infinity you're in total darkness total silence
1: yeah i didn't feel that way i <coughs> I, I mean i did it was a little relaxed but i didn't feel like i was like flying through infinity. Yeah, they have
0: cheaper tanks that's that's part of the problem some of the tanks i could feel not, the water
1: the entire time
0: yeah it's probably either too cold or too hot it should be do you be, feel
1: like your brain is like
0: uh, in the now when you're doing it is that something I feel like my brain is has way more resource res- <clears throat> Way more resources available to it so like if you and I were having this conversation and we didn't have the headphones on and there was a jackhammer next to us, it would be really distracting. You'd want to get away from that jackhammer. Like, let's go talk over here. Until so you'd want, you'd want to get away as far as you could from. The, but everything is a distraction. Like the the seat on my butt is a distraction. The, the shoes on my feet are something I'm thinking about. The watch on my hand. There's all these different things that are distracting you. But when you get in that tank, there's none of those things. You're you're just you settle in, and once you settle in, you touch each side so that you can, you know, because you get in the water, there's like a few whip, ripples and little little waves, and then you uh, touch each side so you calm everything down, and then I sink into the water, and then I take some deep breaths, and then I slowly bring my arms in the middle, and then I chill out. And I've done it so many times, my body goes, okay, here we go again. Like, it's not like, whoa, what is this? This is so weird. I've done it so many times that my body gets into that state very quickly. But if I take time off, and I do, sometimes I'll take weeks or even a month off, and then it's a little more weird at first. Like, oh, we're doing this again. Oh, I haven't done this in a while. But when I do it consistently on a regular basis two, three times a week, then I could just sink right into it.
1: I wonder if it would be any therapeutic benefit to people with like sensory gating disorders. Sensory gating? Disorders? Yeah, we're, you know, in other words, like you were mentioning all the senses, other sensory things that are happening, you know, there's auditory, there's smell, there's visual. I mean, these things are our brains inputting it at all times. I mean, there's mm-hmm. stuff going on, but we're able to kind of filter it out. And like you and I are having this conversation, Jamie's been sitting over the whole time, and like I really haven't paid much attention. To I him, right? pay attention to him. <laughs> <laughs> but some people, like particularly schizophrenic people with schizophrenia, they can't, they don't filter that out. And so. Right. Like, they get overload. Like, it's, like, an overload. It's called sensory mm. overload. And so they oftentimes, like, can't go into, like, a room with a lot of people. They don't want to, like, go off and, you know, with, you know, by themselves or whatever. So I wonder if there is any sort of uh, benefit for, like, doing something like that where you're, where you're not, you know, the sensory inputs kind of, like, if you could kind of train your brain a little bit. Mm. I don't know.
0: I don't know. Um, I just... I find that for me, it it helps me think way clearer because I feel like I have more brain available to access. I feel like if you were trying to say something that was very... Very complicated, and you were trying to explain something that required a lot of the resources of your brain. If there was a lot of noise around you, you wouldn't be able to do it. But if there was a lot of noise, you're like, You want to eat? Let's go eat. And you're like, bop, 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 right. bop, 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 bop. Some jackhammer. Yeah, I'm hungry. You want to eat? Yeah, let's go eat. Like, you could be able to communicate something very simple. But if you were trying to explain you know, the various mechanisms of Yeah, you should really try this. Yeah,
1: because I think. Because I, I go through, like, this. I also sometimes use the sauna for that, where I'll, like, have something like prepared i used to actually before giving a presentation i would go in the sauna and i would go through it in my head mm. you know so it's like you know that was something that that i used to do a lot Right, um, because the
0: sauna there's nothing in there just you yeah sitting there and it gives you that unusual environment of just silence it really helped yeah, yeah. so it's kind of interesting that you yeah. mentioned that with the that's physician. a step toward but i think the the float tank is the ultimate and right now there's a really interesting podcast that's available um i've I've talked about this podcast before stuff to blow your mind they have a an episode right now this week that is about john lilly who is the psychedelic pioneer who created the uh, sensory deprivation tank and he also is a pioneer in interspecies communication figured out um, how to communicate with dolphins and did a bunch of weird psychedelic research with dolphins. There it is, from the vault, John C. Lilly. He a really amazing, amazing guy who, uh, I mean, if you go – they go deep into the history of his, his career too, which is just very varied, fucking really strange guy. But I think his his great contribution is not just – Understanding the sentient nature of dolphins and how incredibly complex their language is and how smart they are But also the sensory deprivation tank, which I, I think is It's one of the most underutilized tools for consciousness for exploring consciousness and just for Relaxation and for me for examining ideas if I have an idea like I used to do I used to do a lot of jujitsu in there like I would go into the tank and I would go over moves because when you're when you're completely out I, I would I would drill moves in my head like as if I was doing them I would like clinch hook roll tuck grab sink I would do all these different things in my head and practicing yeah. yeah and I would allow I would do that to get me to this like relaxation state and I, or I would go over a joke that I'm struggling with or a comedy bit I'm like what is a better way to say this how's what's the best way to get this across now, I'm saying it this way, but it's offensive or it's blunt and it's not the p- funny part. Like I'm, I'm, I'm taking a shortcut, maybe. I'd, about, And then I would go over it in my head. And then eventually, once I would do that, I would get to this relaxation point where then I could just concentrate only on breathing. So after I've like worked out all the things that are bugging me, and sometimes it would be like a seminar on my life. I'd get in there, and then as soon as I close the tank door and lay down, I'd take a few deep breaths, and then I'd be like, "Okay, so here's what's wrong, fuckface. You're doing too much of this. Clean your goddamn office. You know how come you uh, you only get eight out of ten things done on your to-do list? That's bothering you. You know you need to spend an hour a day just doing this, and instead of." Drinking coffee and looking at your phone before you work out. Just fucking work out. Just get in there and get your – you're wasting 20 minutes doing that. That 20 minutes, you could have been done 20 minutes earlier, and then you wouldn't have to rush over here to do the podcast. And, and it's like it starts sort of giving me almost like a subconscious uh, renovation. You know, like just, just sort of like, cause, okay, like this is – this all this stuff in your subconscious is disturbing you, and here's why it's disturbing you. Because you've got all this clutter. So let's clean this shit up, clean it up, get it together. And it's been responsible for, I think, a lot of my focus and discipline, like understanding the, the significance of that focus and discipline. And it's not just like to be a tough guy or to just go out there and kick ass. It's it's more like to, to absolve yourself of brain clutter.
1: That's pretty awesome, that introspection you're talking about. I, mean, yeah. I think a lot of people... Could use more of that including myself i mean it's certainly
0: i think all of us i think all yeah. of us really anyone listening to this and i think there's probably one in san diego so if there's a tank place in san diego reach out to dr ronda patrick <laughs> and uh i'm sure that there's a place you could use this down yeah. there that's near you
1: i mean i certainly use other things like uh, extra running long runs sure do that do something similar get in that zone in the zone yeah just yeah. sort of But uh, what you're describing sounds kind of like next level
0: a lot of people get it from swimming as well swimming. Yeah, because it's just like Yeah, yeah. that repetitive thing and then you're sort of managing the motion of your body And then once you get in it's almost like a mantra You're managing the motion of your body and then the breathing and then once you get it all synced up If you're in good enough shape that it's not like a a titanic struggle with every uh, every lap or every uh, stroke of your arms you can get into this sort of meditative state that a lot of people achieve with running or or even with just like sitting there breathing. Like a lot of people get that.
1: Yeah. I have a difficult time doing that. But Yeah. Uh, it's hard. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny that it would be hard to sit still?
1: It is. It is funny. Um, it's actually like the, the, some of the other interesting stuff is just doing that. Sit there. Sit still and breathe. Changes like the the activation of enzymes and stuff like telomerase, the enzyme that rebuilds telomeres. Like, yeah. it literally a- activates telomerase. So it's so fascinating how just like certain things like like I wouldn't imagine doing that would actually you know
0: change telomerase yeah the body body's just this never-ending puzzle it really is and whenever i talk to you i'm more and more sort of aware of that because there's so many different things and so many different mechanisms in, in terms of nutrition and nutritional absorption that i just i'm so ignorant of and so i hear all these things and i'm like i'm trying to th- trying to get a map of the territory I, and, yeah, I mean, also, there's so many things I'm to of as yeah. well. <laughs> but I feel it's, like every time I talk, it's like someone's breaking out a little napkin and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you take a right here and you go there and I go, all right. But it's not a real map. Like the the map of the whole thing escapes me. It's too big. It it's is. It's too big It's and it's too complex. And I'll listen to this podcast again. Like I'll listen to all the things you, you said again and I'll try to take notes maybe tomorrow or the next day. But then my stupid brain will like, uh, it'll like leak, half of it will leak out. It's like I'm trying to hold water in my fingers. It's like, I got it. I got some water. It's <laughs> fucking dripping down my wrists.
1: It's yeah. so
0: hard. It's so hard to get a, a real understanding of this stuff.
1: I, I agree. I mean, there's certainly lots of controversy and disagreement among researchers as well,
0: you know. Don't you think that's also probably one what's so attractive about simplifying things, like hashtag meat heels? You know what I mean? Like people are almost like, yeah, let's just, just jam it into a saying or jam it into like one type of practice. And that's all you need. That's all you need. All you need is meat. Look at me. I'm just eating meat. Feeling great. I feel amazing. And then people are like, I want to feel amazing. And then they jump in too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You already saw me get emotional. I was.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did get emotional, and I'm glad you did sort of spell it out. And I, I hope. I mean, I'm gonna send this to Jordan afterwards. I don't know if he has the time to listen to it. He might have less time than us. You know, guy's pretty busy. Yeah. But,
1: maybe when he's, you know, moving, going from one place to another on a plane or whatever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um. I just think that it's a movement right now, and you got to be real careful about movements. Yeah. Because yeah. you get swept up in them. And you're like, hey, I'm moving. I'm not, I don't know if this is the right way. Well, I don't know if this is the right way to move, but I'm moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Well, look, we just did three hours. Nice. Crazy. Yeah. Time flies. I
1: always love talking with you, Joe. I it's, always love talking with you, too. It's fun. I'm going to take you up on the flotation thing because I really do want to experience time. it.
0: Anytime. Anytime. Call me up. It's yours. Just give me some time. You know, just give me like a, you know little bit in advance we'll open the place up for you <laughs> awesome all right thank you all right oh uh give people found my fitness on instagram found my fitness on twitter um itunes itunes your podcast, podcast. Yep. um and the most recent one which is the one that we were discussing was about alzheimer's, alzheimer's. Yeah. And uh, website is also com. Found yeah, there's a lot of
1: uh, there's a lot of uh, show notes and summaries and definitions that help people like you know understand some of the stuff if they don't understand everything that we're speaking about. So
0: thank you very much. Awesome thank you. Rhonda Patrick, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh.